This is Jocko Podcast number 90. With Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. As my wife Tori mentioned, this past week has been one of the most challenging of my life. I want to say thanks to my friends and family for your support. You really have no idea how much a few words of encouragement can mean when you are at a time and place like this. Thanks again. My platoon is in a very active area of operations in southern Afghanistan. Our mission is to close with and destroy the enemy. There is no outside the wire here because there is no wire. My boys are simply always on alert. We haven't had a shower since we've been in Afghanistan. We've run nonstop missions and have been very successful at accomplishing these without experiencing any injuries to our own. I'm just trying to paint a picture of life here and not trying to make you feel sorry for us. Trust me, I belong here with these guys and we are a family. Rather, I want to paint a picture because I'd like to tell you about Travis Mills. I know you don't know him, but it would mean a lot to me to be able to spread his story. My platoon's string of missions without injury came to an abrupt and violent end last week when we hit a dismounted IED during combat operations. I had three paratroopers injured from the blast. One was minor, one was severe, and one was simply beyond words. The most severe injury was sustained by my weapon squad leader, Travis Big Mills. I'd like to take the opportunity to tell you about him. Even under the conditions that I've described, he is the best of us. He was the biggest guy in the platoon and has the biggest heart to go with it. He was eager to please and always cheered us up. He led from the front and was injured because of it. He preferred that he take the injury over any man in his squad. He was the most fearless person I have ever seen in combat. When we weren't in combat, he was great to have around. He woke up every morning and sang a bunch of different songs to us, usually Keisha or Britney Spears or the songs of some other girl band. We had this ritual. Anytime we finished a patrol where we had a firefight, once we returned to the strong point, he'd run to the front of the formation and sing songs about the 82nd Airborne. He would do dance gestures and all. He even did it for the brigade commander when he came to visit. It was a big hit. I laughed at how, or he laughed at how serious I am and how I don't like to be touched. So he made it his personal mission to make me laugh. Usually this involved an overly aggressive and a little too intimate man hug followed by a middle school style dance where he'd grind on me. He kept me sane. 
I laughed at his antics constantly. In combat, there is no one we would rather have been with. He risked his life to save others constantly, and I can recall two times specifically where he literally saved me. Needless to say, I took his injury hard, including the personal guilt that a leader feels when he is responsible for his men. So I wanted to tell you these things. Everyone is asking how I'm doing. Yes, I am hurting, but you know I'm going to be okay. More importantly, Travis is going to be okay. The truth is, I've seen things here so terrible that I'll never be able to put them into words, Travis's injury being at the top of the list. But I've also seen things here so wonderful that I'll never be able to put them into words either. I know that sounds crazy, but it's true. How do you put into words the spirit like the one I've just described in Big Mills? The reality of it is that I have the honor of leading people like Travis. There are many more in my platoon just like him. So while I've seen some things I'd like to never talk about again, I've seen just as many that I'll spend the rest of my life trying to explain to anyone who will listen. I've seen a tremendous love and care between brothers that have only each other to rely on and have only one care, to bring each other home. It's a selfless, deep, everlasting bond that I consider myself lucky and absolutely privileged to be a part of. Thank you so much again for your support, but know that I am fine. I am exactly where I need to be right now. My family here is taking care of each other, and we will persevere as one. Now that is a letter that was written to friends and family at home from Lieutenant Zach Lewis, commander of 1st Platoon Bravo Troop, 473rd Cavalry Squadron, 4th Brigade Combat Team of the 82nd Airborne Division. The All-Americans and I think that letter describes Staff Sergeant Travis Mills as only a fellow platoon member could explaining his unbelievably positive attitude his courage under fire and his unwavering leadership And tonight, I am honored beyond words to have the man that Lieutenant Lewis spoke of, Travis Mills, here with us to talk through his experiences on the battlefield and off.
Travis, welcome to the show. Good evening. Thank you for having me. Yeah, now I'm going to say this up front. I was a little nervous about having you on because this show has a reputation of being very serious and very solemn. And I know that you have an issue with both of those terms in a broad perspective. So for those of you that haven't heard anything from Travis before, there's not a lot of serious stuff <laughs> that Travis does. So um, serious comedian and hilarious guy with an incredible attitude. Um, welcome to the show, man. Thanks thank, for coming on. No, thank you so much. I'll do my best to be serious. <laughs> um, I think my LT described it very well in that uh, letter he wrote to his family. I, I made sure that I kept the spirits up and I would hug him and everything like that, but under fire, I was a whole different person. Yeah, yeah. No, I thought he did a great job of capturing you know what everyone's feeling over there. And oh, I, didn't, I didn't go in Afghanistan, but what, just similar to what we'd feel in Iraq. Um, and you know, I talk about this a lot, about the fact that this is why guys miss combat. You know, you miss combat even though it's when you're over there and you're in this crappy situation and you're like, oh, I can't wait to get home. But then when you get home, you have that little thing in the back of your mind that says that misses that camaraderie, which only comes from that place. So he did a good job of describing that. So I think to, un to understand where a man ends up, we kind of got to understand where a man comes from. So, going back to the beginning, the, the young Travis Mills, <laughs> the young Travis Mills, and you know how you grew up and all that, um, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm from Michigan. When I go around and I speak throughout the nation, I always say, is anybody from Ohio? And before I tell them I'm from Michigan, I yell, OH, and then they yell, IO, and they get real passionate, and then I yell, sucks. <laughs> um, you know, and I get, I get some booze, but I'm from a small town in Michigan, um, right around the thumb area. I grew up playing football, basketball, and baseball. I have an older sister, younger brother. Um, my parents are phenomenal people and, you know, just good, wholesome values. And then I went to college to play football uh, after high school was over, and decided that probably wasn't the right time for me to go to college and take it serious so i went to the so, so hold on so you were playing three sports in in, in high school, school. In high and school. i i got a quote from your book in here by the way um i'm gonna read it i was the fun kid who lived at the end of your block i was big for my age and for a lot of boyhood years i had a big gap between my two front teeth yeah now is that a negative thing um I, no, not at all. Okay, because some of us at the table here still have a gap between our front <laughs> teeth. I'm just saying. Oh, I, on the sides now, right? Or, yeah, I do. But I, uh, I like to wear my ha my hair shaved in a buzz cut, particularly in the summers when it got hot. With that Opie Taylor kind of look, I fit into small town America. And you did karate, by the way. You're looking at the 1993 karate state champion in Michigan. Um, I was six, but <laughs> that's a t isn't that a competitive age bracket for, it, it for karate championships? It was. I was spinning back kick kids right over wrestling mats, breaking ribs. Uh, actually, you had a you had a contest here. I'm gonna I'm gonna read about it. It wasn't all easy. 
In one of my first karate matches, I got kicked hard in the sternum and couldn't breathe. I gasped, panicked, and tried to suck air. When my normal breathing didn't return immediately, I raised my hand and forfeited the match. I'm kind of disappointed. My dad rushed over. Travis, what are you doing? You forfeit a match. You, ne- you never forfeit a match no matter how hard you're hurting. You never quit, ever. Yeah, my dad was disappointed in me too. Uh, <laughs> so I never did again. And then I just, I don't know. I just went hard the rest of that after that. I just, I don't know. My dad taught me good values. My mom took karate with me. Um, so don't mess with your mom either. No, no. Well, <laughs> yeah. Don't. She's she's five foot two, like 125 pounds. How did how did she produce your big ass? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> how tall is your dad? Uh, like five eleven. No kidding. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. But I was six foot three when yeah. I was at my walk around weight. And uh, the first match I ever had, I had a girl, and she beat me because I wouldn't hit her. Yeah. And then I was cleared to, like, hit girls, and I thought that, okay, so the next girl I fought, oh. I went, went to town on, <laughs> you know, just put a whooping. And now I know you don't hit girls either way. Yeah, so yeah. I learned, you know. That's a lose-lose situation. Yeah. But then your mom, your mom told you, no, go hit her. Yeah, that's she, that's she what it says it. in the book. Like she was like, "Hey, listen, you got to go beat her up." Well, okay, so it was competition, mm-hmm. and she was in my. You know, they didn't have the separate gender brackets, so everybody was the same. And the first girl I faced, I wasn't hit, and I yeah. lost about. And then the next girl after that, my mom was like, "You can, you can hit him." I was like, "Oh, okay." So I was just like, "You're going down," you know, and I went after it. <laughs> oh, that's jacked up, man. <laughs> Uh, I mean, I was six, so I mean, I had yeah, 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 you know, yeah. puberty and everything didn't hit yet. That was seven for me. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, football team, Vince Laville. Did I say that right? Ah, Levier. Okay, yeah, well, you know, I'm don't not worry about so it. much of a French speaker over on my end, don't or worry. whatever that language is. If I didn't know his name, I would have said the same thing. So. <laughs> Here's how he described you. The first time I met Travis, he was in middle school at track meet. I'd heard about him, so I went over to watch him. He won the shot put, which meant he was strong. Then he ran over, then he ran over to the 100-yard hurdles and won those, which meant he was fast. You don't see that combination a lot. I knew that this kid was going to be a special athlete. In high school, he became a superstar, three-sport athlete, baseball, basketball, and football. He was the leader on each team and made first-team all-conference in all three sports. With football, he was definitely a big cog in our team's wheel. We were the smallest school in our conference, and we got beat up for a lot of years but his junior year travis and his friends got into weightlifting and powerlifting and went to all the football camps that year we won the conference championship and made the playoffs for the first time ever travis's work ethic motivated everybody motivated everybody everybody got stronger because travis was their leader jack and steel what's well, what champions do <laughs> first time we ever made the playoffs how, how did you how did you what like got you what made you start lifting uh, Coach Levier, when, when I was in seventh, sixth, uh, seventh grade, he said that after school, if I wasn't playing a sport, I had to go lift weights. And he was the vice principal of the high school, so having friends in high places is nice. Because when you get in trouble, you don't really get in trouble, you know. Um, the story, yeah, the story in there about me getting in trouble in class freshman year. What'd you do? Uh, I don't. You know, I, I broke. Uh, <laughs> it was childish. Never mind. But just so, tell us what you did. It's in the book. You're not going to hide from it now. Uh, my buddy farted in class, got kicked in the hallway, so then my other buddy did, so I wanted to go out there, so I finally let one rip so I can go out in the hallway. <laughs> and he took us into the office, but he's just like, guys, knock it off. You can't do this anymore. Too much protein powder? Oh, that's all. Yeah, so my buddy, Eric, he got uh, his parents are very competitive like mine were, uh-huh. and we were both uh, the team captains and stars of the show, if you will. So I went home and said, hey, can I get some Celtech or Nitro Tech? 
and it was before like they had the reg- regulations on it. Uh-huh. And uh, my parents were like, no, you can't do that. I'm like, well, Eric's parents let him get it. Maybe it wasn't true. Right. Eric went home and said the same thing to his parents. Yeah. So we both got to get on those. And I mean, you know, protein powder. Yeah. Just, that, that's going to disrupt science class. <laughs> yeah. yeah. A wee bit. A wee bit. But no, I mean, it was, it was fun. You know, everybody, I worked at a grocery store. Um, after the football games, the old men would come in, drink coffee, and hang out with me. Yeah. And my boss just, like, the owner of the store just accepted it. Like, the wives would shop. and They I'd just be, let you get away with it. Yeah, I was, I was at the water cooler, but it was a coffee pot, and we just hang out. They'd tell me what I did wrong, what I did right. Very varsity uh, var, um, varsity blues tile. Right, right, yeah. big time. Yeah. Yeah, I saw some video footage of you at those games. It was like madness at those games. Well, the, the one the one run I had was looked pretty good on film. Yeah, yeah it looked pretty good to me. That was one time I did anything special. <laughs> <laughs> so you get done with your senior year of football, and did you maintain the high level of discipline in your grades after that point? Mm, no so, actually i broke up with a girlfriend that had a 4.0 oh so my grades went right down yeah, yeah. no more study partner no no more like she would help do with all, homework yeah be in the same class and write left-handed for the scratch work and hand it to me so i could write <laughs> nothing like that and so that that meant did you get looked at did you get looked at for college ball i did i had uh, a couple offers for baseball and football um d2 couple d1s smaller d1s mm-hmm. And for some reason, my guidance counselor, he just, I think he just knew, Mr. Simpson, great guy. He kind of figured I wasn't going to like college and be disciplined enough. So he's like, what about this community college? They're really good. Mm-hmm. Um, you can go there and play football. And I, and I decided to go there. And uh, I just, I mean, if I was cut out for football. I wasn't cut out for the study and that at, right. at that time in my life. Right. And so you went there for what, uh, one year? Uh, semester. One semester. And then my girlfriend was like, you should move home. So I did. Yeah. And then I met her boyfriend, Colin. You know? <laughs> so then I, then I joined the army. If you look back at my life, how'd this happen? Yeah. <laughs> it's her fault. Colin. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I you run into Colin like, lately? I, I haven't talked. I haven't. Yeah. No. Well, look uh, him up. Maybe. I mean, <laughs> he worked at a, at a putt-putt golf course when I found everything out. So I grabbed my buddy up and went over there. <laughs> and the manager of the place, I like, sent him home. Why did she tell you to come home? So I could be by her, I guess. I don't know. Uh, and then I was like, hey, what's this about? <laughs> and then she finally broke down and told me. So I was like, oh, hey, did you know the Army was taking people and giving bonuses? <laughs> See ya. Yeah, because you were in debt. You you ran up. Like I was, a, you know, I was about 10 grand in debt for yeah. a community college. But that was for the whole year. Because mm-hmm. uh, the baseball coach asked me to play there, too. Dang. Um, yeah. But then you, uh, you're you in debt. You're, um, Colin was in, on the scene now. That yeah. kind of threw a loop. So, so you end up joining the Army. I joined the army. I went to all the recruiters, and the army had the best thing going, which was cash twenty four thousand dollars. <laughs> you know where that money's at today? No idea. Yeah, me neither. Yeah. yeah. Uh, does did Budweiser get any of that money? You know, nah. Uh-uh. No, I don't. I'm actually, I'm not a beer fan. Not a boozer. No. Whoa. Oh. Okay. <laughs> whoa. Whoa. I'm not, no. No. That's not go that far. I'm. I'm a whiskey fan. Oh, okay. Um. But uh, no. I mean, I just. I saw a way to pay my bills back. I right. saw a way to travel and do some more fun stuff. I went in there to be an electrician, and they showed me the, airborne video. I was like, I want that. Oh, yeah. The old, the old uh, what's that called? Bait and switch. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. What I really want to do is I want to get a good um, thing, you know, where I can carry on in the civilian life and have a good trade, that yeah. craft that I can bring yeah. back to the civilian world. They're like, watch this video. <laughs> You're like, yes. Yes, that's me. That's all. So they showed you an, uh, is it like airborne recruiting video? Um. Well, be honest with you, it was a Ranger Regiment recruiting video, and I signed up for all that. But then all the rumors were like, if you don't make it, you're going to Korea. And I'm like, I don't want to go to Korea. Yeah. And then 22 of my friends 
went to Fort Bragg because you got to pick your duty mm -hmm. station because they were filling up the new brigades. Oh, and they're like, nice. oh, you guys, we need you to fill in here and you can pick where you go. So all of us from basic training went. Because what year is this? Uh, 2006. Oh, yeah. So that's, so that's totally different from me because I joined the Navy in 1990. Oh, yeah, that's before I was even a cri-state champion. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we're talking old school. Yeah. <laughs> so there's no war going on. And even though in my mind, I always thought, like, the SEALs were just, like, fighting wars worldwide at all times, mm -hmm. which was not true. But I thought that. But, yeah, it wasn't like everyone that was joining the military. It's not like when you guys joined, the your generation of people joined, you knew you were going to war. Oh, absolutely. 100%. You know, I uh, the, the biggest regret I actually do have, and and not to kiss up to what you've done, but is not try to go to the Rangers or go special forces or to the sea. Like not even, I didn't even try it. I wish I would have. Well, you would have, did you start thinking about that further in your career? Absolutely. Yeah. I was going to come back. Um, and I was either going to go recruiter and get my last year and a half of college. Cause I went to college when I could, I took college up oh, okay. on reenlistments and I was going to try to go recruiter to, um, go ahead and get my degree and then go to the special operations right. world. Because if you don't do it that way, if you become an officer later, you got to go back through the queue and everything. Oh, uh, okay. But it was either going to be go right to special operations and try that out or go become an officer and then go. But, mm -hmm. yeah, just, uh, you know, I don't know. I, yeah. I, I have no excuse except for It's a weird thing. It's a weird thing, and I don't really, like, anybody, like, I was, if you compare you as an athlete in high school and me in, as an athlete in high school, it's not even comparable. You, you were like 10 times the athlete I was. For some reason, I was stupid enough to think like, I can make it through that training. And you weren't smart enough to go like, I can make that through that no, training because you would have. And the, the saddest thing is with the whole uh, the Ranger contract I had and all these guys were going, and I got to talk to my buddies going to Fort Bragg. I ran into a bunch of them. They're like, oh, yeah, we made it. I was like, oh, my gosh. Yeah. I could have. I was, yeah. you know, this is ridiculous. It's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting, uh, it's actually humility. It's you being like, hey, man, you know, I don't know. I played, you know, football and baseball and ran track or was that is that right well basketball oh football baseball and basketball i'm a great athlete but i might not make it through that's that's actually a form of humility you know i think it is i was just yeah i don't know where my head was at i just i i you know looking back now i'm embarrassed about it a little bit and i wish i i wish i would have went and tried it out i mean i live a really good life i have a wonderful wife and everything not to jump ahead uh two beautiful children so life life's good yeah as bad as the situation i'm you know i found myself in in April of, of, tw of 2012, but but looking back, I wish I would have tried something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but the 82nd Airborne is which is where you ended up is a freaking awesome unit. Oh, I yeah. yeah. I mean, you I drink mean, the Kool Aid, and it's <laughs> everybody's like all about standards. How'd you like? And this is something I because a lot of people that listen to podcast, um, they join the military, believe it or not, and like we just met a guy the other day who's going September 18th, going to the Marine Corps. But I always want to tell them, like, when you show up to boot camp, it's going to be a shock to your system, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it is going to be, you're going to be lack of sleep. It's not going to be stuff that you're used to. It, it, it sounds like you got a little, you know, shocked to your system when you showed up there of just normal military stuff. And I guess my point in saying that is when you show up to boot camp, boot camp is, is, is not going to be fun for you. It's going to be a transition. I mean, you can mentally prepare all day. Yeah. You know, and then you get yelled at, and you're like, "Why is this guy always yelling at me? <laughs> I didn't, I didn't do anything wrong. Leave me alone." Um, they made me eat coleslaw. I don't even like coleslaw. <laughs> I mean, the first thing, like, I come out and they're like, "Everybody gets coleslaw for lunch." I'm like, "Shit!" I don't. So they put it on my plate, and then after I eat the coleslaw, I eat it first. I'm like, "Oh, he wants me to eat this for some reason, so I'm gonna just do this." And then the next time at dinner, I'm like, "Okay, finally, no coleslaw." And he's like, "Mills, you big bastard! You ate first. I remember you. You get two scoops of coleslaw." Damn it. Roger Jules aren't, uh, you know, so. 
Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's boot camp, right? Yeah, that's boot camp. And I always tell when I talk to people that are going, I'm like, just play the game. Yeah, you know, understand it's going to end, and make the army what you can make it. Like, make it work for you. Yeah. understand the job you're getting yourself into, and things like that. Because people ask, would you still join if you know what happened? And I said, yeah, absolutely, I would. Yeah, um, I enjoyed every second. I, I was going to be a 20 year guy. I figured. Yeah. I, mean, I reenlisted and and uh, just you know. Yeah, it's it's cool. This is a cool uh, thing that you wrote, kind of as you're wrapping up boot camp. Um, you're thinking about September 11th. You know, like I said, that for you is one of the, you clearly knew that going in in 2006. And here's what you said: I remember feeling a ragged mix of emotions, anger, confusion, dismay, and wondering why anybody would want to do this to us. I was American. I understood we'd been attacked, and that our country was now at war, and that when there's a war. Somebody needs to have the courage and intestinal wherewithal to do the actual defending, fighting, and unavoidable killing that accompany military actions. That would turn out to be me. And that's another thing that people need to think about if you're joining the military. And I've gone through this with a bunch of people that, you know, I, I, this happened to me a long time ago. This parent, you know, said, can you come talk to my son? And he really wants to be a SEAL. And I was like, yeah, sure, no problem. And so I meet this kid, strapping young kid, looks super happy and positive, and he does water polo, and he's a great athlete. And he's like, yeah, I really want to join the SEAL teams. You know, what, what advice do you have for me? I'm like, are, are you ready to kill people, and are you ready to die? And it was like the whole room got, well, just them two, but they're looking at me like, I'm crazy. But my point was, like, that's what the military is. You kill people and you risk your life. That's, that's what the military is. I mean, yeah, absolutely. They have the combat and non-combat uh, combat MOSs, you know, just in every every service. So with the SEAL teams, with the infantry, that's that's what your job is. And you're willing to risk your life um, for others. I mean, it's just when I signed up, I was like, yeah, I'm ready to do this. But you never really understand everything. And then when you go through basic training, they show you all these videos. And a lot of it, they showed a lot of Band of Brothers stuff, which mm-hmm. is what got me interested in going into the military. Mm-hmm. And um I just took it as like this is what I this is what I'm born to do. This is awesome. Yeah. But but I get what you're saying. And people ask me, can you talk my son out of doing this? And I'm like, <laughs> no. no like, that's like the, the, no. You can't you can't talk you ever, a young yeah. man out of doing this stuff. You ever find people that want to tell you like, well, I was going to join, but then I I did this, and I'm yeah. like, I don't I don't care. Yeah. Like, don't you know? And everybody I talk to, not everybody, but a lot of people I talk to, they got to give me their worst story possible. <laughs> of like, oh, I got a brother's friend that <laughs> lost two legs, you know, in a bear trap, and I'm like. <laughs> Okay, so yeah. I know what you're going through. Yeah. <laughs> I don't. Okay, that works for me, I guess. Dude, I watch out for them bear traps. I know. They, uh, yeah. they sneak up on you. Yeah, my brother's friend is crazy. I met him one time, <laughs> but brother. I get what you're. I know exactly what you're doing. I'm like, okay, dude, uh, this cracked me up. You're at Airborne School. Most uh, you're you're doing your first jumps. You do five jumps at Airborne School. Most back to the book. Most were without incident, except my third jump, which was supposed to be a daytime combat jump with full gear. On the way down, I dropped my rucksack too slowly. You're supposed to release it when you come to the tree line, but when I released the pack, it stayed just ahead of me, and I landed on top of the metal frame. Frame. Ouch! I yelled in pain. The jump master was already on the ground and yelled back at me. Did you bring something, Private Mills? I said no. He glared at me and added, then shut up. I shut up. Airborne school is really funny. And so this is what happened to me at airborne school. I was a, for, for every, I'm not like, um, I, I, I'm a person that falls fast through the air when parachuting. I don't know why. I'm just yeah. one of those people. You don't float. No, I don't float. Yeah. And, and the other thing was I didn't like doing a PLF 
which is the proper way to land, which is you keep your feet and knees together, and then you like act like you have one big leg, and that's the way you're supposed to prevent getting injured, breaking your ankle or knee or whatever. And so when I was parachuting at airborne school, I wasn't really doing a PLF. I was just kind of athletically landing on my feet, right? <laughs> so anyways, they got these loudspeakers down on the, on the uh, field. And as all these new guys, all of us are just new, and the guy's on the megaphone, he goes, and he's talking to me, because my feet are apart, and I'm just gonna do an athletic thing, and he goes, feet knees together airborne, feet knees together airborne, feet knees together airborne, feet knees together airborne. <laughs> you all right airborne? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, I thought that was funny. That cracked me Did up. it hurt? No, I, I didn't get hurt. That's impressive. I didn't get hurt. Because you got, you know, I was uh, I was actually a jump master during, towards the end of my, you know, military yeah. time that I was in. And, you know, got the balls of feet, calf, thigh, you know, yeah. I had it all yeah, down. Yeah, you were dialed. Oh, I Those had, instructors. How long is the, the jump master school well, to be an instructor at Fort Benning? Well, at ben, so it's completely different. So, okay. it, well, I mean, it's not that much different, I guess. But for me, it was like a three-week course, and I was able to, like, check people's equipment. But they didn't make you memorize the term. In, oh, they did, didn't they? Did they? Uh, you got to memorize like the pre-jump brief okay. and everything yeah, yeah. and stuff like that. But no, like like this is a nylon stitch with five thousand grain <laughs> test and steel that's stronger than America. You know, like, <laughs> it's like that's no way it's stronger than America. No way. But no, they don't they don't do that to you. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a good times. Um, you're getting ready for your first deployment. So you show up at eighty second, everyone. You're you're there. You're getting ready for your first deployment. You know you're going to Afghanistan, and you're leaving just after Christmas. And here we're going to the book. My dad didn't talk to me about leaving. Over the next few days, we hung out and did whatever we normally did. But most he said during that time was, "Be sure to keep your head down." Then the day before I left, Dad told me a story about when he went into the army. He'd taken washable paint and written a note to his parents in their shower stall where they were sure to be able to see it. It said one short sentence of reassurance. All will be fine. Early the morning that I left, I took a washable marker and went into my parents' bathroom. Right above the faucets where they were sure to see it, I wrote the same short message. All will be fine. I was miles away from the house when my dad called. He told me he saw the note. I didn't say much, and he didn't say much. He told me he loved me. Then his voice became hoarse, and his words of support for me came out broken and choked. First time going on deployment. And it was, it was a little rough, too, because um, a guy from my hometown, a Marine, uh, he was a buddy of mine. His dad's my baseball coach. Uh, his brother's in my grade. Uh, the day after Christmas on the 26th, he got shot by a sniper in Iraq and ended up right to his heart, and he didn't make it home. So his uh, my brother's actually his girlfriend was his uh, that this Chris's uh, little sister, and she was at my house, and I found out from, from friends that what had happened before the family found out uh, from people that were deployed with the unit. So, I mean, that was, that was rough on my parents, you know, to have me – you know, in a couple of weeks going overseas and then I'm at home and the day after Christmas, you know, a guy gets shot that I know. Yeah. There's, uh, um, that's one, I think that's one of the hardest things for, uh, when, when military families see someone wounded or killed, they know that that could be their, mm -hmm. their loved one. And uh, that's why that that's, I mean, days before you're leaving, man, 
That's yeah. that's harsh. And and we're good. We're close friends with the family. Like like I said, his, the, his dad coached me from I think uh, ten years old up to Dang. fourteen, and or, yeah, yeah, fourteen or fifteen. But and, you know, knew the family really well. So so it was a little rough and things like that for a bit uh, on my parents, but. You know, people now when they see me, they they say, "Hey, do you go and speak to a lot of military things?" And I'm like, you know, I don't really do that that much. If they want me to come in, I will. But I'm not sure. But guys going overseas want to see me on stage saying, "Hey, guys, you're gonna be a okay." <laughs> you know, I mean, it's probably not the route I'm gonna. I mean, I talked to a lot of companies, but when it comes down to that, I'm like, "Hey, guys, you'll be good over there." It's like some movie that that six. Uh, yeah. I don't know what it is, but they're like, the "Infantry made me the man I am today." Starship Troopers. Yes. Yeah, I've never seen it, but I get told that line. Yeah. He's got like two fake legs. He's good. He's real good with movie quotes, especially bad movies. I'm so glad. I forgot you were here. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's great. Every now and then chime in. Uh, So your first deployment, what are you, are you an E3 or an E4? Um, When I went over there, I think I was an E3. That's. I might have been an E2 actually. Dang. Okay. I was only in the military like six months before I deployed. That's, that's crazy. Oh, it was a good time. I worked for a colonel. Yeah. And you doing basically PSD for the colonel, right? Yeah. Yeah, so like, try being like a young private. You go to a unit that's not infantry. You don't get treated like crap. You work for a uh, lieutenant colonel right. who's a direct descendant of Colonel Custer. He's a it was his great uncle. Dang. The guy's just as wild, Scotty D. And he always walk around saying, "What's better than a pair of aces, guys? Two pair." And he show like the double A's on his arms. <laughs> and uh, phenomenal guy, really. And we just go around with him. So if we ever got yelled at. Uh, my my team leader was was a cook, yeah. uh, Sergeant Rush, like. If we if we ever got yelled at, he'd just go to the colonel and be like, "Hey, so they're bothering us." And the colonel would be like, "Don't you touch my guys." And I'm like, "This is so nice being protected." So I literally a colonel. So that was a relatively cush. And you were living on a if if you were the colonel, I'm assuming you were living in like pretty good. Fob Salerno. Oh yeah. And they have like hard buildings and they had tents. We were in the very first hard building. Dang. Oh, we all went in and bought uh, satellite internet. And <laughs> had a shower every day. Yeah. Hot meals. It was and wonderful. How often are you rolling out into town? Every day. Okay. But we'd go out do government work and come back. Okay. You know, and then I was in the gym. I'd go at eight o'clock. I I don't like being in the gym with people. Mm-hmm. Like I was like, I don't want no one on my machines. Mm-hmm. And I superset it a lot. Mm-hmm. Um so I'd go from eight to eleven at night, just crush it and then midnight child, which is like the greatest thing ever. Yeah. No crowd. Oh. You just you're like, I'll take omelets and hot wings today. You know? <laughs> oh, you get the combo breakfast and dinner scenario going I mean, down. I know you're a much cooler guy than me, but when you got the, the midnight chow with Fob Sal, I'm telling you, it's like, yeah, I want the, the hot wings, I'll take pancakes and, and omelets. <laughs> and I want you to throw some pota- mashed potatoes and gravy on that. <laughs> and uh, you guys, it sounds like on that first, well, you didn't, you didn't even shoot. You didn't even shoot your gun, first didn't, deployment. Didn't have to. I was on patrols every day. Had a suicide bomber run off yeah. on us and like detonate on the front of our truck. <laughs> just like yeah. what an idiot. You know, <laughs> no, I mean like and like you know his nutsacks hanging off the light and his you know, but he's just the truck's not hurt at all. <laughs> it's like genius, bro, genius, job well done. A, but, a for effort, yeah, like a F for judgment. Yeah, yeah. But still, that I mean that that having a suicide bomber hit your truck. That's like a that's at least a reality check at a minimum, right? Well, I mean, yeah. So it was it was, it was our our uh, one of our, our front trucks, and then also we had a guy run up on the colonel opening a hospital and detonate himself. Um, mm-hmm. I was in the truck at that time, like in the gun. But we just found out if we go out there and we just make sure that everybody knows we're really aware. Every time we take a turn, you know, our guns are rotating. We're not sleeping. We're up and out. Um, we didn't really get messed with, and um, and that and that helped. I mean, I was 
you know, I was in a, a place where there was bombs and things like that, but I was very right. protected. You know, right. EOD would roll out before the colonel went anywhere. <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah. How many gun tru- How many gun trucks would you take on a convoy? Just with four. The just four of us. With him in the three truck or two truck? He was in the two. I was okay. his gunner the first like six months. Nice. And then I was uh, I moved to like be a, a TC. But it 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 the threat level was like medium. I mean, because yeah. you would take yeah, yeah. you would take a bigger convoy with more aggressive facilities. If I was in a, the hum, it was all Humvees we, uh-huh. before like any other. Yeah, yeah. And I had a two four nine like as my my main weapon. I had a saw. Yeah. They're like, yeah, oh, okay, the front truck, yep, 50 cal. Uh, back truck, we're going to give you a mark, and you're just going to get a saw. Yeah. I was like, oh, awesome. Thank you. So I had I had a saw. <laughs> that's why I, I put it up there like it was a big old gun. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Uh, good times. Yeah. Why didn't they give you a real gun up there? Uh, apparently the, <laughs> my biceps were big enough. That was a real gun show. <laughs> you know, and I get that. I had 22s at the time. <laughs> I got some supplements sent to me. Respect. <laughs> The SF guys found a way for me to get some of their supplements. It's wonderful. Uh, now, you went to for is this the is this the deployment you went for home for R and R on? It is. And you had your um, first meeting. First meeting with yeah. one of your platoon mates' sisters. You know, I love to I love to antagonize people, <laughs> and I got a MySpace friend request, and uh, I you. thought I thought man, this must be a dating page. It was a you know cowgirl hat, brown yeah. blouse shirt, or whatever, jean skirt. I was like, that's a dating site, you know. This is an ad. Wait a second, <laughs> that last name is the same as my medic. Let's do some investigation. He was home on R and R, and I was looking through. I was like, that's his little sister. She's eighteen, so it's legal. And I was just like, except you know, and we started chit chatting, and I just did it to make him mad, you know. But we ended up enjoying each other's company. The first time we ever met, I was like, I deserve a vacation. I've been here 11 and a half months. You know, like I'm coming home for th- for uh, 18 days. You want, to, you want to go on vacation? She's like, yeah, sure. So we decided we're going to go to Cozumel, Mexico. Yeah. How'd, you, how'd you talk the uh, her dad into that? She was 18, so she oh. did what she wanted, I guess. I don't know. He didn't kill me. So yeah. had every right. And so you go to Mexico. That's your first date. It's like, hey, I'm just going to take you to Mexico. Yeah, yeah. You, you guys, I say I don't know where that $24,000 went. I know exactly where it went. <laughs> um, went to Mexico, then back to Michigan for a week. Had a great time. Uh, she went back to Texas. I had to go back overseas. I got held up in Atlanta. So I called her up. I was like, hey, I'm in Atlanta for the night. You want to come? And she said, yeah. So she came out. Next morning, saying her goodbyes. Crocodile tears streaming from her face. Um, and she's like, I love you. And I'm like, I'm no idiot, so I love you too. You know, yeah, as fast as I could. Yeah. She's like, I love you. I, like, I didn't even pause, you know. And she's like, in between her stops, I want to marry you. And I'm like, yeah, I get that. But, you know, in my head I said that because I, I was like, I want to marry you too. <laughs> um, real Casanova here. I jump on that airplane, get back overseas, give her a call. Right, 24 hours later in Afghanistan, I'm like, hey, what's going on, babe? She's like, guess what? I'm like, I don't know what. The wedding's planned. <laughs> oh. Zales.com, bought her a ring and <laughs> called her dad and whatnot. He's yeah. like, yeah, I guess that's cool. I'm like, well, okay, thanks. Yeah. And then we got married. How did her brother feel about it? Cause you, you, was, was her brother in your platoon with oh, you? Oh, he was my medic, yeah. Oh, he actually good. rode in the same truck as me. Oh. And my colonel would pick on him on the oh, radio. Man. Hey, Buck, what do you think Mills doing with your sister? And, stuff? and it's like, <laughs> I'm like, break, break, break. You can let that go. Because <laughs> you mean I'm standing up in the truck, you know, and Josh can just yeah. hammer me from the back seat. And I'm like, no, 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 don't do this. Don't do this here. <laughs> um, but, uh, nah, he, he knew I was a good guy. He's like, he told his mom and dad, he's like, look, I, I know how it looks. He's actually a good guy and really nice. Yeah. So we'll see how it works out. And then so, I ended up marrying her. Yeah. You know? Yeah. No, that's awesome, man. That's that's a, a great story. You detail it um, in here that... <laughs> 
pretty uh it's pretty unbelievable you know that you pulled all that off well and the colonel was actually setting me up um to go to the prep school in virginia for west point uh-huh. he's like you should be playing football and my my uh lieutenant at the time um lieutenant phillips now he's a major but or maybe he's a colonel now but um he was training me. He was a football coach, and he holds a record in Chicago. Yeah, most consecutive losses at the school that he was coaching at <laughs> in high school. Yeah, they were that bad. Great guy, though. And he was, like, helping me coach and train up and lift weights and do whatever. But then I met Kelsey. I was like, I think I'm just going to do this, you know. So we got married when I got back. How long How long after you went home for Christmas did you come back? Uh, I came back in April on the 13th night, 14th morning. And then you won't find it in my book, but we got married at the courthouse on the 17th. There you go. Yeah. And then we got married again in yeah, like like, a big wedding in June. Yeah. Like but, the most military. But you wanted that money. Well, I needed to. I yeah. spent all my money. <laughs> you know, I was, I was like, I don't know how I'm going to get a house. So I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm like, look, we need to, I need that BAH for three months to pay for this damn wedding, you know? So. Where did you guys have your wedding? Over. In Texas, in McKinney, about 112 that day. And then, uh, so you settled down and now you. Now you know you're staying in the army. You're pretty pretty much saying I'm staying in the army at this point. Well, I mean, I really enjoyed it. I got moved around to another unit when I got back because I had to go to like a line unit. I couldn't be a PSD guy the whole <laughs> life. I mean, I was up for it. I was like, this is awesome. But uh, yeah, we got a house, or an apartment in North Carolina, uh, right outside Fort Bragg. There, bought a dog. Um, life was good, and and I figured the military is doing well, and then just kind of hung out for 15 months or 18 months before I deployed. Again. That's what I was going to say. So it's 18 months but between deployments for you. Uh, it was that time. It was usually a year and three months. So like I went for 15 months. So they gave me 18 months off. I went for a year and then I, they gave me, um, 15 months off. Then I had to go again for my third, but I'm jumping ahead here. So you, you get back over on deployment. Um, and this is, this is like within days and you, you'll tighten me up on that. But, one of your one of your friends, Tyler Juden, is I saying that right? Mm-hmm. Yep. He's uh, out on a mounted patrol. IED hits the first vehicle. Then they get a snar- small arms ambush. And I'm going to the book here. Our guys needed to get the disabled vehicle out of the way. And while they worked toward this objective, Tyler sprinted up to a high site on a nearby hill and fired through some five to seven magazines of ammo, protecting his soldiers below. When the disabled truck was finally cleared, Tyler sprinted back to the truck. But the enemy had specifically targeted him. An RPG flew in, and he was hit. They rushed him back to the hospital at the FOB, but it was too late. Tyler died on the operating table. Fury rose up inside of me. I wanted to find whatever Taliban savages did this to Tyler and shoot them in the face. Tyler was always cautious. He took his job extremely seriously and never made mistakes. There was no reason for him to die. He described to me once how he believed his job as a sniper ultimately saved innocent lives. He was putting into practice what he knew to be true. He was helping the world, not hindering it, and he'd been trained to be one of the rough men who stands ready in the night, prepared to do his duty, prepared to visit violence on those who would do us harm. Tyler's death hit far too close to home, and we'd only just arrived. So that's not a fun way to kick off deployment. Damn. No, and I, I'm not sure if you experienced in your unit, but it seems like the guys that get hit are the ones that you don't expect will ever get hit. Yeah. So Tyler was a year older than me. Uh, I respected him. I mean, it was it was crazy because, you know, 
a guy's year older, so like, well, whatever. But he had such a professionalism about him, and I looked up to him, and I tried to learn what I could from him. And he only had like a – he probably had an extra year and a half in the Army than I did, but but either way. Mm-hmm. And highly ranked sniper, and uh, he went up and just – he didn't take bad shots, so he was just popping everybody, and they, they did target him. He actually – I'm pretty sure it was uh, Camp Chapman that he – I'm not sure if you've ever been to yeah. the, the SF no, uh, I haven't base there. Um, uh, but anyway, that's where he ended up not making – it was only two weeks into the appointment. And, um, you know, when, when that guy like that gets hit, one, you're obviously frustrated and angry. You don't know why it happened. But, two, it's like – well, geez, if he can get, you know, hit or taken out, you know, it kind of takes you down to confidence a peg or two, uh, peg or two as well because yeah. he's the guy you wouldn't expect. Not that you expect anybody to get hit, I guess. No. But, you know, like a super soldier yeah. style guy. Yeah. And, and I'm sure, like, everybody, if you held him in that regard, everybody held him in that regard. And so everybody's feeling that same oh, yeah. kind of uh, straight-up nervousness, right? Yeah. And there was – he would walk by, like – on our ACUs, like we have a string, you're supposed to tuck the string in, some standard stuff. If mine would always be hanging out, and he'd walk by and yank on it, and they make me do push-ups and yell at me. And I wanted to punch him in the face, but I couldn't, you know. And I understood why he was doing it. So mm-hmm. that's just a fun story, I guess. I like to tell people because I, I mean, if I could have decked him, I probably would. <laughs> I've only been in one fist fight ever. I knocked myself out playing volleyball. <laughs> that was it. That was the one. Yeah, <laughs> it's sad but true. It's in the book. Uh, yeah. It's, I don't know what that. Well, you might as well tell it. Well, yeah, we just were playing volleyball, and I ever got mad. I was going over the net. We made OE uh, OE two five four like cables uh-huh. for the antennas. We used uh-huh. those and five fifty cord. Uh-huh. And I was like, "Quick, go over the net!" And I was six foot three, and the net was only six foot tall. So I was like, just hammering it home. <laughs> I had a vertical, you know, like LeBron. So it was ridiculous. A whole belly button above the net, and I kept going over, and they kept yelling. So I pulled my hand back real fast before I did it, and then I caught myself right in the eye socket. <laughs> Knocked out. You actually knocked yourself out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But but later on when I had this happen, I did get knocked out. Yeah. That's so it's true. like can you imagine what the fist of fury could have done? <laughs> Floyd wouldn't have stood a chance yeah. against me. I don't know if I'm impressed if that's like super impressive mm-hmm. or super not impressive. Right. You either have yeah, fists of iron or a glass jaw. We're well, not sure which. I hit a bomb. Yeah. And I didn't get knocked out. So fists my answers iron. have been fists of iron. Yeah. You know, the questions have been answered. <laughs> Probably be in jail right now if I ever went fisticuffs with anybody. <laughs> so, uh, you it sounds like you, you guys ended up doing overwatches of a road in, um, what, up by? Zabzik Pass. Okay. Yeah. And Great time. How long were you on that for? Uh, we went out there, and they were like, yeah, just go ahead and pack for you know a couple of weeks. And then we were out there, uh, I think, 50, some, 50 days or so. And we were just living on top of a mountain. And then like, just monitoring the road. Yeah, just because they had to, they were bringing up convoys of jingle trucks with military gear on it to build another fob, and we had people on both sides. And I actually, uh, I was so afraid to tell my wife. I, I went down one day to get some food or something or get a resupply, and uh, I'm way back up. They made a stop. They want to register mortars, and I was like, "What the? I just want to get back up there." I got out and I slammed my door, and like the brilliant guy I am, I went ahead and used the fist of fear and I hammered a Hummer. <laughs> And I ripped the scab open on my hand. I told the wife, my story to my wife, it was so much blood, it was gushing, it was ridiculous. But uh, it was my wedding ring finger, so I took my wedding ring off, put it on the front of the Hummer, and I got the medic. I was like, get out of here, Doc, you know, Willis or whatever, I fixed this up for me. And uh, he had to put tape on it. I got back in, left my wedding ring right on the front of that Hummer, and drove back up a mountain. So, Oops. like, for 30-some days, every time I got a chance to go down the mountain, I had a metal detector out, like, please find this tungsten ring. Please, I don't want to tell my wife. I never, never found, found it. it. <laughs> 
Dang. <laughs> I, I, uh, I always like to give people that didn't serve a little, you know, impression or of, of what it's like. And I thought this one wrapped it up pretty good going to the book here. Going so long without taking a shower came with its share of complications. Guys got trench foot from their feet being wet and sweaty and not taking care of them properly. I got strange rashes in intimate areas, and it wasn't uncommon for a guy to mutter about his balls sticking to his leg when he hiked. Every dude got chafed up pretty badly in his bodily crevices, and a common complaint was that a guy had swass, slang for sweaty ass. My armpits hurt. I sweated so much that the salt got trapped in my skin and my back broke out in a raised bubbly rash. This happened to other guys too. The only solution is to get your ID card out and have another dude scrape your back hard until the salt crystals pop out. It's a brutal procedure and it feels like getting cut with a razor blade, but it's all part of the fun. Mm-hmm. Yep. Day to day. Yeah. Day to day get some. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like I was complaining in that one. Huh. No, it, yeah, watching someone like scrape salt crystals, like sides of table salt come out of there. I'm not sure if you ever experienced no. anything like that. No, but uh, yeah, it's pretty bad. And you get so gross. And then I don't know. I took four real showers that year. Yeah, <laughs> like real ones. I mean, you go get a water bottle, poke holes in the top, and spray yourself down. But then you got to get dirty all over again. And <laughs> it's this whole long process. So you're talking like, in there like how it takes like nine days or something before you get comfortable with your nastiness yeah yeah and then you don't even want to break the cycle and get clean again because it's <laughs> yeah, going to take like, you nine days mm, to get used to it again mm, no <laughs> the best part's like the winter because you don't smell as bad in the winter like in the winter you don't take showers you're like oh it doesn't even matter <laughs> i'll brush my teeth keep them pearly white make my teeth look whiter <laughs> you know but uh yeah no it's pretty i actually decided um halfway into that deployment i was like told my wife just send me eight pair of ranger panties so I, I wore a whole pair of like ranger panties for a month and i just took them off i was like no not gonna wash these just don't worry oh accept it and move on <laughs> 12 bucks well spent so matter of fact where a zobzak pass my uh my pants got so torn they were like chaps like my butt cheeks were hanging out and stuff and one of these sergeant majors came in you know and they're all out of uh, out of shape like we're you ate up like a bag of dicks. And He's like, change your pants. I'm like, Sergeant Major, if I change my pants, I'm going to get another pair that looks just like this. Like, it's a, I'm not on the fob. Yeah. And you come in, they're like, you, you got to get a new uniform and all that. I'm like, you bring me one. I'm like, yeah, okay, let me do that. <laughs> you got it, bud. I know you're going to get back in that truck and roll your ass out of here. So, Back yeah. to the chicken wings and pancakes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, I know. I ate a lot of MREs. Uh, that's good times. Yeah, you know, I got to just straight up. I mean, in in the SEAL teams, we just don't have to eat that many MREs. It's have just the to way it is. don't get to. D- either. <laughs> you make them. You can make those things delicious. Yeah, you can. That burrito? Mm. <laughs> get at me. You mix a little bit in there? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I actually, my first deployment to Iraq, we ate MREs for a little while, and I was legitimately sick of them, and, and it was it wasn't that long. Mm-hmm. But I was already sick of them. It yeah. wasn't no 50 days. I can promise you that. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You were just going to say something about the SEAL teams, weren't you? No, not, I would never. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I don't have fist of fury to defend myself. So we it's like, we're getting shipped in steaks and crap like that. I mean, later on at the point, we had like steaks on like one day a week. They'd bring out like these frozen steaks and we'd cook them over like an open pit of fire with a, with a stick through them. Yeah. Dude, no it, flavor, is, it is legit. Like I, we'd go out to some rent. My first point, we'd go out to, cause we were living, we were on Biop in Baghdad, big chow hall, mm-hmm. everything good. Mm-hmm. And we'd go out to 
do an op somewhere there'd be some SF group in the middle of nowhere and you'd see how they're living I mean, it wasn't always an SF group someone's just an army you know mm-hmm. some army platoon or company out there in the middle of nowhere and you're like dang these boys are roughing it nasty and we're here like they brought Gatorade they brought a case <laughs> yeah, of yeah. give me two <laughs> give me two I'm gonna hide one in my pillowcase you'd feel bad they'd be like oh man you're in the SEAL teams we're like dude I'm ashamed to, to like even be hanging out with you right now you guys smell so bad but I don't know why they brought me out here <laughs> Can you guys go sit over there? We're just going to sit here. Leave yeah. us alone. We'd get guys like, get do you know what? We've gone three days without a shower. This is crap, man. Right. <laughs> yeah, we did that. We did that. It's totally the same life. But, you know, with and during the I mean, and during the suck, it, it's still like, it, it's funny. Like, my friends from high school, right? I have two really good friends I can talk with, whatever. But if I run to another person from high school or whatever, we'll catch up on everything. And it's like, oh, great talking to you and you know and then you find your way out of the conversation but you friend of military buddies you haven't seen in years and you just go right back into it you know just because you understand where you've been what you're going through yeah um speaking of going through stuff here we go back to the book the taliban screeched to a stop and started shooting at the anp bullets cracked all around us we got word from higher command to engage i yelled to my men fire we shot our rifles and schwartz let loose with several bursts of machine gun Rat-a-tat-tat, rat-a-tat-tat, rat-a-tat-tat. This is my first large-scale firefight of any kind. It hit me with a wham that this wasn't merely a training exercise anymore. This was the real deal. My adrenaline rose and with it a surge of energy. But I also felt calm, as if all my training had kicked in at once, and I just did what I was trained to do. I honestly wasn't afraid. I took aim and fired at the bad guys they fired at me and it didn't faze me to think that I might kill somebody when I wanted when they wanted to kill me first I saw several Taliban members get hit and fall more fell and more the last few who were left turned around and took off took off up the wadi we got word to get not to give chase because wadis are great choke points for potential enemy ambushes when the shooting died down completely, we approached close enough to see the bodies of the enemy soldiers I'd just helped kill. It was a surreal feeling, but I reminded myself that this is what a soldiers are built to do. We received reports later that three of my men, or three of the men killed were top Taliban leaders in the region. So there's your first gunfight. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah. So the A&P, um, the A&P commander was a former Taliban guy, and he switched over sides and ran yeah. the AMP. And he's like, yeah, they're having a big meeting. I got a call. They're going to come down this wadi. We'll go check it out. And then all of a sudden, just like, just dropping, you know, Mark 19 and um, the 50 cal and 240 on them and just, hey, you know, going nuts. And then, uh, and then you know, they, they come back, and they, they, they're really good about taking their bodies away with them. You know, yeah. they're, they're pretty good about it. But they were like 18 or uh, 20 people deep in the in the wadi coming, and we just led into them. And, uh yeah, that was my first like real taste of like I shoot my gun at people. What were you a, a team leader at this point? Uh, no, I was so I was actually a squad leader. Oh, that's uh, right. I was I was a position up, so I was still an E five, but I was in a squad leader position. So I was tried to do as of what a up. weapon squad. No, no, we were actually uh, we were mounted. Okay, so I had my own truck, but I had oh, two okay. trucks that were under me. So I had two two uh, two trucks that were two teams. Got so it. I had uh, two team leaders that were underneath me, and then we each had a truck. So my senior like team leader had one. Of, he was a TC of his truck, and then I was a TC of the the junior team leader that I had. Yeah, it was a good time. Again, I said that at, I was speaking somewhere the other day, and I said something along those lines. And like somebody said, like I, I think it's kind of weird that you say it's good time and fun, 
And I'm like, well, it's adrenaline rush yeah, like you're not going to get. It's I mean, good time and fun. I mean, they shot at me first. I mean, <laughs> he started it. They started. Yeah, defend yourself. But uh, yeah, yeah, and then I mean, yeah, it just it, you know doesn't it didn't phase me. It, it didn't hit me hard. I wasn't worried about it. Um, just kept moving on. As a matter of fact, that region died right down like completely after that. Well, if you kill all those bad guys, that yeah. certainly yeah, has they just, an impact. Like uh, that was our first night out there too. Like moved out to the middle of nowhere in a snowstorm, and that was like our, maybe our, not first night, our second night out there. And we just shot everybody, and then for the next like two months, it was quiet. And they were like they backfilled us with some other platoon. They're like, hey, we're gonna bring in this platoon here. You guys are gonna go up north where there's ba- a lot of fighting in Balamargab. <laughs> all right, cool, let's do it. So that's that's the next big movement that you made was to that spot, mm-hmm. and that place had a bad rep, like as far as being a lot of fighting there. Uh, Balamargab was real heavy. Real heavy. It was um, the Balmagab River, and when we got there, um, the Italians were there before us, and I guess they were just like, "Hey, Taliban, don't mess with us. Here's here's some money, and we're good, <laughs> and we're uh, we're the eight seconds." So we're like, "No, not gonna happen." And the infantry platoon that we replaced, and I, I mean, for the record, I am infantry. I was in a cab unit, but yeah. they always have uh, Charlie Troop is an infantry platoon they bring in, and then we had these coin platoons. So it was like two infantry and two cab squads to make the platoons up, but um. Yeah, we replaced these uh, the infantry guys. They had two guys killed, unfortunately, fell into a river. There was actually a ceasefire with the Taliban to find the bodies and bring the bodies back. Um, and we got up there, and there was like a, a line in the sand. They said, look, you cross this line, you're going to get shot at. And we were like, all right, cool. So we would, <laughs> we started taking ground. And um, everywhere that there's a fighting position on top of a mountain, they would booby trap it when they were done. So a guy, one of the FOs, uh, Sergeant Fox, good guy, he picked up a matchbox. He's like, yep, I got a matchbox. It looks like, and then just, they only found his torso. That was, you know, everything else was gone. Just his body armor. Um, but instead of staying in one spot at this one, we, we took one more spot. And they're like, yeah, well, some um, Marsat guys went up here. You know, to another was this spot. the, uh, was these the strong points like Corvette and Impala? Is that what mm-hmm. we're talking about mm-hmm. now? Yeah. 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 Yeah, these are in your book. Um, you talk about those being, and Impala was the, the even worse one, even further in enemy mm-hmm. territory. Yeah, and they were like, yeah, we had like a Marsat guy got shot in the head when he was up there. Um, because there's like a eight-man team that went in. Mm-hmm. They're like, you guys can't really go there. So we decided one night we're going to go there. We tra- we got all ready for it. Um, what was Impala physically? What is it, like a little uh, former like like house or it something? House. It was actually, Absolutely, it was a house. Um, and we decided we were going to take it one night because it was the last house on the edge of town. And then there was 1,200 meters between the next like village. And the Taliban would go in there and shoot at us and, you know, be able to sneak down away far enough. And uh, we had um, a javelin team come up on one side. We we went up in the middle of the night on this side, and we had other people on this side. And we just we just took it uh, in the middle of the night. And then they said, we're going to go up there for, like, you know, three days, do reconnaissance, come back. And they're like, hey, you know what, we're going to stay there. So the work didn't stop. We had to fill sandbags, put up barbed wire, um, and then we went up the side of a mountain and built and dug in a uh, um, an OP. But it was like mm-hmm. we we had twenty one guys there. Taliban never knew. We only had twenty man twenty uh, one man platoon. So we had like thirteen down at the cop, and then we sent the rest of them up on top of a hill. And we dug in so deep that was eight foot deep pits. And there was a living room, a two forty pit, a fifty cal pit, um, uh, like a little dining kitchen area, and then like three sleeping pits. Like three, like that two cots would fit in. Like it was huge. Did you put overhead cover on them somehow? Uh, no, we just dug them deep enough where you didn't 
didn't need it. Yeah, I mean, we put our, I guess we put our uh, um, ponchos over right. it, you know, things like but that. But not protection from mortars. No, no. Uh, and if you stood up, when they were digging it, and they started digging it, when you stood up and you were digging, they start shooting at us. And then we just rain hell. And um, we dug in, and after about a month of that, we just were killing so many, they just gave it up. They're like, all right, we're done. Um, and that's where we, I mean, we came, they came out, we were black on water, and then, like, the brass came out. They're like, why aren't you guys shaving? Where's your haircuts? And we're like, are you, we don't have water. Are you kidding me right now, bro? And then the same sergeant major yelling for my pants. They wanted to go up to CROP. So my platoon sergeant's like, hey, Sergeant Mills, I need you. Can you take one of your teams and just go? So we took four men out. And I walked them right over what I thought the road was clear, you know, but it was all filled with water when we took the place. Walked more huge IEDs. They just, the batteries had died in them because they waited, you know, we waited too long. But when they dried up, they're like, oh, there's a mortar. <laughs> oh, look at that. That's yeah. a, that's AT mine and triple stack, you know. Um, but anyways, so I would like took them up on top of the OP and stuff like that. And it was funny because as they're yelling at us for not being shaven or cleaned up, I go a quarter of the way up this. It's like a hundred yards probably, like almost straight up. Mm-hmm. And I, I go up a quarter of the way with them and I say, all right, I'll be right back. And so I run to the top and I'd say, hey, LT. You know, the sergeant major is coming up and the colonel, so just be ready. You know, so we're, like, trying to put our uniforms on and everything instead of, like, just our T-shirts. And I run back down, and he's bear crawling. He sits down. He's like, I can't do it. I'm like, go eat your midnight child and leave us alone. How about that? Are you kidding Dang. me? Dang. That was uh, it, huh? He, but, did he make it to the OP? I, he, he made it up to the top. He did eventually. And I'm like, but I came back down. I kind of put a little bit of fear in him. I said, Sergeant Major, this is not the spot that you want to stop. Right there, that town, that's Taliban held. Anybody in that town shoots at us. And if they see that we're not moving quick, they're going to take pop shots. So you're going to need to, yeah, I mean, mostly true. But yeah. He's like, he was like sitting down looking. And I was like, no, 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 no. You need to, need to move, Sergeant Major. You need to go. <laughs> and I mean, and no offense to the brass. It wasn't even my Sergeant Major. I don't think that was there at the time. It was like a different unit or whatever. But, but yeah, I mean, it was, it was, a, it was a wild, wild west. We were just shooting um, firefights every day, but we were the northern limit. You know, there was nobody farther pushed than us. Yeah, I want one part. You're talking about how you you ended up shooting eleven javelins in in a day. I mm-hmm. think yeah, mm-hmm. that's that's getting after it on, yeah. on pretty much anyone's standards. Yeah, I think we shot twenty nine that whole deployment. Um, it was just, it was cool. Damn. Um, See, conventional army can be fun. Yeah, shoot, shoot no, javelins. Hey, yeah, do the the conventional army we were with in Ramadi were freaking getting after it every single day. Is is they were awesome. Awesome. Um, like you were getting in a firefight every day there, huh? Um, or for, for a bit there we were, and then it died right down. They were just tired because, you know, once they shot once, we just we let loose. We had enough ammo to to last us for years, probably. <laughs> and we let them know. We let them know. Yeah, America's real cool when it comes to ammo. Yeah, in yeah. those situations, it's like, oh, you guys need more? Yeah, we'll be right there. <laughs> uh, all right. You are, yeah, same thing happened. You were like, you were like, did you find, you found triple stacked IEDs in your position? Yeah, so dumbest thing ever. We went in and we cleared it. And then we had like Marines EOD, like Marsoc EOD clear stuff. Like there was like an unexploded RPG round on the side of one Mm -hmm. of the walls. And then there was um, other booby traps. Well, it turns out where we were rolling all of our like big barrels for the generator and stuff like that was like, it was all booby trapped, right? We're exactly where we stepped. And this guy, Sergeant Barton, he's a great guy. He, there's this metal out of the ground. He's like, huh, what's that? He starts beating on it with a shovel. <laughs> and I'm going, I'm getting ready to go on my R&R. Oh, you know? my and he God. And ting, ting. I'm like, what are you oh doing, dude? He's God. like, something in the ground here. Just 
<laughs> looking looking at it. He starts digging around. He's like, oh, oh, that's not, oh, shit. And then turns out we were on these 50-gallon drums, taking all this supplies over, right over top, right in the breezeway. Good God. <laughs> it's where I would, so it was so hot there. And, uh, I mean, I get Iraq's hot too, but it was so hot, like me and my buddy, who was one of my uh, team uh, leaders, um, we'd go out there and we'd spray ourselves with water bottle, be in our PT shorts, spray ourselves with a water bottle, lay on our cots and just see how long it took to dry. Usually about 10 to 15 minutes to get completely dry. And our cots were right on top of these bottles. <laughs> <laughs> just had no idea. Because, I mean, EOD came through and they didn't find anything. So was it, do you figure it was like a commandette that had the battery died or something? It, or uh, It was, uh, yeah, well, it was um, uh, pressure plates. Oh, my God. So, like, these big drums were having the circuit connect, but the batteries in them died. We, you know, luckily we didn't God. take the property to, you know, after like the, I think after the Marshawk guys got hit, um, they went in there and booby trapped it all knowing that we were trying to take it, but yeah. the, somehow the batteries didn't, didn't work, which helped out for us because we like, we jumped over a, a rock wall that they had where there was like a hole in the wall already from uh, probably a hellfire or something mm-hmm. from time before. So right where we, you know, obviously be an easy place for us to jump over. That's where we all jumped over and there was stuff stacked there too. Yeah. So it's where you talk about it in here. Um, and, and I heard this from the Vietnam SEALs. They would set up ambushes on VC and they would, you know, go, okay, we're going to shoot from here. And when we shoot from here, they're going to take cover over here behind this log. So they'd put a big claymore mm-hmm. underneath that mm-hmm. log. And they're, you're, you're talking about how the Taliban is doing the same thing over there. Um, you know, basically, oh, we, as soon as we start shooting at them, they're going to run to these covered positions. So we'll just put booby traps or mines in any of these covered positions. Yeah, we actually had to uh, change up our... Uh SOPs are standing operating procedures on my third deployment and instead of diving for cover you had to take a knee Yeah, you yeah, that's that's what I was reading and I was just I, that's what it reminded me of it reminded mm-hmm. me of that's what that's what my predecessors in the SEAL teams in Vietnam's would do to the enemy and now The enemy was doing it to us or to you guys It's yeah. scary um, This is this is an interesting spot. You're heading home for leave from there I left in May and caught a series of connecting flights home to America I gave Kelsey a huge kiss at the airport in Dallas and when I got back to the house gave our dog buddy a big hug It felt great to be back, but it also felt surreal and this is the strange part of this leave time I didn't quite know what to do with myself. I could take a hot shower anytime I wanted I could sit on the couch and play video games. I could drink a beer and eat a cheeseburger outside on the back porch Nobody was shooting at me. Nobody stunk Nobody was sleeping on triple stacked IEDs. Kelsey was finishing up the semester with college and work, so I bought a truck and we drove up to Michigan to see my parents. We had a few bright and happy days with them, then it was soon time to go, just like that. I hugged my parents, gave Kelsey a big kiss, and flew out to Detroit to head back overseas. It felt oddly good to be back to Afghanistan. The feeling is difficult to explain. In America, when I'd hung around with some friends in Dallas and got reacquainted with some of my buddies from high school back in Michigan, I'd seen firsthand how most of the people my age lived. If a dude was 22 or 23 like me, he was usually finishing up college or hanging out trying to find an internship or an entry-level job. He might be living in his parents' basement, trying to scrape together enough money to move out. Or maybe he was partying hard on weekends, or maybe still in a frat. He was almost always short on money, almost always wondering what to do with his future. Not that there was anything wrong with any of that. A guy's got to do what a guy's got to do. But by contrast, at my age in the military, I led people in combat. I controlled firefights. I handled hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of equipment. I made decisions that affected whether people would live or die. It felt real. 
on a personal level, I made decent money. I was married. I had a good credit score. I was thinking of buying a house soon. It felt good to be trusted with this much responsibility. I was proud of my drive and sense of accomplishment. I was already a man. I think statements like that are like what get kids or I say kids, but like when I meet kids, like I've just met at, at this uh, event we were just at and this, you know, he's like, Hey, I'm 19. I just joined the Marine Corps. I'm leaving September 18th. And that statements like that is what I think makes people join the military. Uh, gets a lot of people to join the military, like 22 years old. Oh yeah. You're getting paid. you got a steady job. Your job is more meaningful than any job they could have. I mean, never mind, maybe they're working at fast food, right? Mm -hmm. Like I did. (laughs) You know, never mind that they're working at Wendy's. Even if they have a kick-ass job somewhere, it doesn't matter. Your job's more meaningful because you're a soldier fighting for freedom. Yeah, and and they would, you know, you go back home and you see what they're doing. You're like, wow, not not a lot's changed. (laughs) And I'm like, I've been in Afghanistan. I I got married. I have an apartment. I, you know, I have two cars or whatever. And it's at that young of an age. I mean, and my friends back home, they they were still really nice and you know, I still get along with them and everything. I just felt like what I was doing was, was a different purpose and, and I was trusted with more things. I mean, when you're in college and everybody's like, Oh, you're a kid in college. But when you're in the army and you're like, Oh, you're in the army, you're on your second deployment. Yeah. Well, you know, how, what do you do? Well, I'm in charge of seven other uh, lives included as well as my own. And I tell them where to move, what to do, how to shoot and how to, how to do things. And they're like, Oh, okay. Yeah. I'll uh-huh. get some kid in the gym. And my gym will be like, oh, yeah. well, you know, well, I'm only 23. And I'll like, oh, yeah, when I was at 23, I was in my third SEAL platoon. <laughs> <laughs> Killing people. <laughs> Actually, yeah. we weren't. We were drinking beers because there was nothing going on. But anyways. Killing Budweiser. <laughs> Killing Budweiser. Yeah. Like, a, like a beast. Um, so then how did you feel about that two weeks of leave during the middle of deployment? Well, I mean, it's a constant worry. Like, how are my guys doing? We had a satellite phone. We didn't have mm-hmm. internet or things like that. So I couldn't just be like hit them up real quick on a because the army makes you do that well yeah yeah they they allow it and then they they say you need you know this stuff and but they're pretty aren't they don't they push it pretty hard no i mean okay i I always uh, thought they pushed it hard well that's uh and i and i don't just just uh don't discriminate i don't know how to say this politically correct there's there's the army that's at bagram air force base Uh. that wears pt belts that you know, goes to Dunkin, uh, goes and gets her Dunkin' Donuts, and that complains because you know, the latte's too hot. And then there's the people like us, where it's like there's 22 of us or 21 of us sitting out in the middle of nowhere, yeah. taking no showers. No one's going to come say, "Hey, you need to do this." Right. We had one kid come out, and I ran into him again in Lansing, Michigan, actually at an event. He, you know, out of the military, and I didn't realize it was him, but he came out. He chose to be a financial um, guy, enlisted mm-hmm. as in the financial world, and that's fine. Hey, you want to do finances? You want to work in the S4 shop? Great comes out they're giving a survey some dumb survey that they're just whatever big army wants you know the good idea fairies or whatever but he's on the rooftop and he's like oh man i hope we get in a gunfight it's gonna be great and look over and say excuse me and he's like well no i just you know because i'm on the five all the time i just i'm i love i want to see a gun you know i hope we get in a, in a firefight i said what don't you get if they shoot at us my guys could get hit for yeah. what you're hoping happens here i yeah. said i got an idea get off my roof and he's like well i, I said no seriously get I'm going to throw you off this roof. You don't get off it. And he looked at uh, Critter, one of my one of my guys, and Critter goes, oh, no, Sergeant Mills is real. He'll throw you off this roof. <laughs> and I said, if we get shot at, don't get in my guy's way. Stay the fuck off the roof and get down. Yeah. And he was just like, but I don't get it. I'm like, it's not a game. This yeah. isn't, I mean, when we get in a firefight, you know, we, we get, you know, people run up in their PT shorts and their flip-flops and they got their Kevlar on and their body armor. But 
I mean, that that's real life. Bullets are flying. And the way he was just so nonchalant, I hope we get in a firefight. That'd be really cool. Mm-hmm. It's like, my guys could get shot. Like, what, what part of cool don't you get? So... I mean, they're, they're, you know, the army does push some things, but other times we're just left alone. Yeah, I just remember guys going from from guys that were in combat all the time, not fobbits, but and they it seemed like the command, their commands, wanted them to go home for those two weeks. And hey, man, you need to take this break on your oh, the, the leave's mandatory. Months. Yeah, I think you meant like calling home, calling home stuff's not mandatory. Oh no, I meant going home. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, you have to go home. You have to go. Okay, that's yeah. what I thought. And a lot of guys, some guys don't want to, but you have to. You know, the calling home thing, I think is is. I don't know how often you called home, but I try to call him like once a week. Mm-hmm. Once or twice a week. Because if you start doing more than that, I think it's worse on both of you. Well, you run out of things to say. Well, that's a good well, point. Cool. You know, for, I mean, no offense to anybody's love life out there, but in my life, I mean, I get along great, you know, but when I would call home, hey, what are you doing? Well, I just another day in Afghanistan. I don't want to be like, well, I was out and uh, I got yeah. shot at and then I ended up killing two people and then this guy got hurt, but it's it's okay. He's going to be fine. Yeah, He's don't worry about me. States. You know, she can't say that kind of stuff. Like, oh, well, you know, I went on a patrol today, got to help a help a kid tie a shoe, you know, and like that gets old. And then what'd you do? Well, I went to school today and I mean, there's no real story there. Right. So I, you got to let it build for a week or two, <laughs> you know, I, I definitely recommend that. Well, I, I, mean, definitely. I, I mean, that in the nicest way possible. No, no, totally. You know? And I think if you're, if you're calling home every day, then you're like, you're, you're missing and you're connecting and it's just like, no, like you said, let it build, have something to talk about real mm-hmm. And well, because then it gets annoying. Like, well, what are you thinking about? And then you get, you know, and it, I, I see it happen. I, you know, I, I even say I, it happened to me and Kelsey. Um, you know, like, what are you thinking about? Well, no, what are you thinking? What do you want to talk about? Well, I don't know. Oh, you got nothing to talk to me about? It's like, no, I don't. And it's not a bad thing. It's not that I love you any less. It's that literally I can't tell you what happened here because yeah. it's not going to make you feel better about the situation. Mm-hmm. So, and you know, another mm-hmm. like thing is, you, you know, you got all this stuff going on, and then your wife's like. You won't believe this. And you're like, what? And she's like, um, we lost that library book that we got out. And now they called and they want us to pay for it. And you're like, mm. just cut the check. Just give them the check. We're going to be good. Well, are they overcharging? I mean, you <laughs> do your research. Can you find it online? You know, cheaper? Uh, yeah. I, yeah. Some of the, the big, the big, yeah, the big trauma, drama yeah. at home. You know, the yeah. wide eyed, like, yeah, oh no. Yeah. It's like, that's not. Okay. Well, I watched a guy bleed bleed out today. I had, to, yeah. I had to put my finger in a bullet hole. So I get what you're saying. Same thing. I was like, "Whoa, my God! Can you believe this?" But you go, you go ahead. Tell me about what happened with you. Today. Tell, tell me about the spoiled uh, mayonnaise that you had on your sandwich. Um, oh, that's no joke. That's awful. <laughs> you get home from that deployment. Going back to the book, my parents flew down from Michigan. Josh and Deanna. This is your Josh is your brother-in-law. Mm-hmm. Deanna is his wife. We're there, and some of the guys from my unit came over. I manned the barbecue. The smell of charcoal fired hamburgers drifted over the neighborhood, and I felt like the luckiest man alive. Kelsey and I had a dog, two cars, and now a house. We were a young family living the American dream. So you had the gold vine house, and now you actually bought one, right? Power of attorney. I called my wife, and she's like, guess what I did today? I was like, what? She goes, I bought a house. I'm like, how did you do that? She's like, well, you bought it. Sign that piece of paper. Power of attorney. So speaking of jokes, I tell every time I talk. There we go. But uh, no, we bought a house, and then my brother-in-law, he was they had a young, uh, young child. They still do Reagan, but uh-huh. at the time, she was uh, like seven, eight months old, I guess. And- I was like, you drinking tonight, Josh? Because I have responsibilities. You know, like, <laughs> oh, I'm I'm all holier than thou or something. Like, I can't drink. And then by the end of the night, he passed out in a fire. <laughs> Drunk as could be. He smoked a pack of cigarettes. He doesn't even smoke cigarettes. He smoked a pack of cigarettes. 
trying to wake him up. He's in a fire ant hill in my backyard, like, oh, that hurts so bad. <laughs> and then I was like, responsibilities, huh? <laughs> Famous last words. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, back to the book. Fortunately, after I got home, I didn't struggle with any past memories of combat, although I do, I know any number of soldiers who do. I told a few stories to Kelsey about our unit's time in Robat and BMG, about going without a shower for so long, and about some firefights we got into at Impala and Corvette, but she didn't like to talk about those things much, and I understood that. I found I could shut off the memories pretty easily. My logic was straightforward. I was a combat soldier. That's what I did. I told my mind to go to certain places, and I refused to allow it to go to other places. I found that I could connect with my family best that way, although I know other guys handled things differently with equal success. And the reason I threw that in there is just because, you know, I get a lot of guys that ask me about how to handle the the whatever memories they're bringing mm-hmm, home. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was, a you know, a pretty good methodology, man. Like, okay, I'm not going to think about that right now. Yeah, I mean, I, it wasn't like I had to bury it. Um, you, you're just so desensitized when you're over there, like... Um, I'm pretty sure the book talks about it, but we went on patrol, and then one of the A&A guys, or A&P, was wearing a bright green, sh- you know, uh, like a construction vest. And uh, we were all in the, getting ready to load up in the trucks, and someone made the joke, I think it was me or maybe Critter, but either way, we were like, well, that guy's going to get shot today, because he stood out. He ended up being the only guy that was shot that day, mm-hmm. and he ended up dying, you know, eventually from his wounds, but it's like, oh, well, he got, he, yep, that guy died. But you just... You don't say it like hoping to get shot, but you're just like, well, that's part of what yeah. happens. But uh, she didn't like hearing my stories of the combat and things like that. So I was just like, well, I guess I won't talk yeah. about them. She's like, you just get so excited about telling those stories and you laugh about it. And it's real serious. I'm like, well, I made it. Like, you know. Yeah. But you still snap into action. I was driving to my house with my buddy and we went past the firing uh, range and they opened up the 240s and like, I hit the brakes, contact right, contact right, and I pull over, and me and him are both uh, reaching for our, our M4s that were supposed to be next to us. We're like, oh, yo. Oh, I'm in a minivan. Like, oh, <laughs> it was a Chevy Impala. <laughs> for me, it was a minivan. Yeah, it's beautiful. I have a minivan. I love it. A, oh, yeah. speaking of minivans, you found out you're you're uh, going to be a daddy at this point, too, when I you did. came home from your second deployment. Oh, no, that'd be awful. If I came from second deployment, I found I was going to be a dad. <laughs> it took us a little while. Oh, yeah. well. Four months after I got back, right we found out we are going to, yeah. Right on. Yeah, that, that gets confusing I when I get home. I wasn't, hey. I wasn't trying to imply anything. <laughs> no, I know, I know. <laughs> yeah, but we, uh, yeah, so uh, didn't plan on it right away, um, you know, having children, but found out we were going to have children or have a daughter and worked out great, you know. I was very excited. Did the whole nesting thing. My wife had a sweet Mazda 3 hatchback. What's she loved. the whole nesting thing? You know, like set the baby room up, get everything oh, ready. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I kept telling my wife because I bought her a brand new car in 2010. It was brand new off the line, Mazda three hatchback. She loves it, loved it. And I was like, that baby seat's not gonna fit in that car. And she's like, yeah, it's gonna be fine. I'm like, no, it's not. Finally, I got so mad one day. Like after arguing with her about it, I went out there and I popped the car seat in. And I said, go ahead and jump in your, your driver's seat, honey. Go ahead, jump in there. And she couldn't fit. She's like, oh, just get rid of it then. She was so mad. <laughs> loved every second. <laughs> You know, because then I won. I won that game. Yeah. You were right. That feels good. Um, I got you off topic. Sorry. Yeah, we were going to have a kid. We were no, yeah, I'm, I'm straight on topic. Way tight on topic over here. I know you're, yeah. <laughs> well, you're a professional. I didn't doubt that. <laughs> uh, September 27, 2011, our daughter was born. Wow. I made some weird noises in the back of my throat. There our kid was with goo all over her and she was wrinkly and scrunched up and all I could think of that she was the most beautiful thing in the world. 
It's okay to cry, the nurse said. I didn't know how to cry. So I just kept making weird noises in my throat. It was awkward. I was like, mm, mm, mm. and the nurse is like, it's okay. It's okay to cry, Mr. Mills. I'm like, I don't know how to cry. And I went, woo. Mm. That was weird. And this lady's like, this guy's taking this kid home. I mean, I almost fought the pediatrician that day. Oh, man. Like, one of the kids, they were talking about Belgium beer or some damn thing. And like, I hear the two doctors talking. And my kid's in there crying. Uh, and the nurse comes out and says, hey, who's supposed to be looking at my kid? And they're like, oh, doctor, this, you for, he has a baby in there. He goes, I, I don't have one in there. And she goes, you must have forgot. He goes, huh. Almost forgot, huh? And chuckles it off and then goes back talking. And I told the nurse, I said, get that kid back in that room. And I turn around to that guy. And I'm already up like, you know, 18, 20 hours because mm-hmm. we went to labor induced or whatever. And eyes are bloodshot. And I'm just like still jacked from lifting weights. And I'm like, you know, you're not going to look at my kid. Find me a better pediatrician. And the guy's like, and I had to go get Kelsey something. And then they came in. She goes, they were very nice when they came in. <laughs> I was like, I don't, I don't know why. You know, I'm towering over this guy. Like, I will beat you if you touch my kid. You're not doing your job, bro. <laughs> then, we, then we put her in the car seat, take her home. And we get home. And my mother-in-law is with us. And we're looking. And Kelsey gets, goes to get out of the car. And she goes, why is she not buckled? And I said, Tammy, I thought you did. She goes, Travis, I thought you did it. So <laughs> strike, you know, strike good one for my kid. Good, good dad award, number yeah, one. Yeah. Coming out of the gates. Right. Coming out of the gates strong. <laughs> Epic fail, 45-minute drive, no car seat. Or no buckled car seat. Uh, I'm a good driver. Yeah, so. yeah that's good, luckily. Uh, and meanwhile, this time you're still a soldier. You go to you go to jump master school. Mm-hmm. And you failed jump master school the first time. I did. Yeah. <laughs> and the sad part, it wasn't like the JMPI. Where you got well, like what jump part master, did you fail? The written exam. Dang. Like the written part. Yeah. Yeah. That reading, it's fundamental. No, you know what? That academic um, part of jump master school, I've heard that's the most brutal part. It was rough. It was rough. <laughs> and uh, I failed I failed that. And everybody's like, oh, you must be a dumbass for failing. I'm like, I am. Yeah. <laughs> but I went back the next, you know, the next cycle and. I ended up passing. Made it through. You know, I thought it was cool in here. You talked about, um, you know, one kid you threw out the plane. Yeah. Yeah, I give uh, another kid you kicked out of the plane. They were fine. Yeah, and that's the thing. They they came and thank you later because they're they're just like scared, right? I'm not sure if they made it on. I don't know. Really <laughs> well, in no, the but, book that you made up here, yeah, um, yeah. you it's claimed the most that. most fabricated book. Uh, <laughs> no, yeah. So I give my brief, and I they always made the youngest or the like the least senior guy give the brief mm-hmm. so like you tell him the brief if you know i say green light go and you don't go I'll give you the order two more times if you don't jump i will unhook you attach you give you off or don't touch your equipment though you know say go to the real paratroopers or whatever that's what a no jumper is that what it's called uh, oh, they have a name for it yeah uh jump refusal jump refusal yeah that's right. I knew so yeah, but then I, military it, term for it. oh yeah and then as i'd say my brief you're you know it's all three pages you got to memorize i'd stop my brief right there and say but i guarantee you today if you're on my door you are going <laughs> So I told the guy, you know, green light, go. And then like, the first guy went, the second guy went, third guy went, fourth guy or whatever. They all go. And then finally I get to like 13 or 14. I'm supposed to exit all, you know, 30 paratroopers or 32, whatever. Uh, and this guy's like froze. And I'm like, I know you uh, think you're not going to go, but you better jump out of this plane. And he's like, you know, <laughs> and I said, I told you you were going. And then back of his shirt, back of his pants, and I just threw him out. And then the person behind him was like, I'm like, get going. <laughs> And then another jump, the same thing happened. I said, I told you you were going. He's stood there frozen the door, like one foot back. I just grabbed the top. Oh, sorry. Backed up, grabbed the top of the plane. I just kicked right in the back of his parachute. Out the door he went. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, we'd hear those rumors, but I never saw it happen. Yeah. I mean, if they don't jump, they're going to lose money. And yeah. then they're going to waste a good pass. And then the plane either can go back around, make another pass and like prolong everybody's night and make it harder because I have a person I got to do paperwork on now, which I don't like to do, mm-hmm. or 
You, you can barely write yeah. from what I understand so well, far. I, no right hand, so I used to be right-handed, so what do you expect? But that's cool. Take take pokes at me with nine arms and legs. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I, so it, it was just fear got the best of them. And I just was like, no, we're going today. And you're, you know, I said some other choice words in their ear, but they went. But what I liked about that from like a broader perspective than just airborne school is like so often, man, people just need to like go. Because like you said, once you go and you get that first thing under your belt, then they go and they jump. It's no problem, you know, but so often people are, they just hesitate. They're just scared of the unknown, you know, mm-hmm. and what you got to do is just go, just jump. Well, my fifth jump in airborne school back when I was, you know, PV2 mills, I jumped out and it was nighttime combat. I was so scared. I didn't know what to do, but I was like, well, I'm not going to be the big sissy on this airplane, mm-hmm. you know, so I dove out like Superman and I got my left uh, leg caught up in the risers. I was coming down like a, like a, a flamingo and my shoot started to collapse on me and I was shaking my I was falling faster but I had pulled my reserve <laughs> you, you you pulled your reserve at everyone's school yeah no kidding they were mad about that oh yeah but I was dropping fast and well, I, I guess mean, you survived which is a good thing yeah yeah but my <laughs> my leg was tangled up so bad so in the first jump in the vision I'm like oh I don't know if I want to do this anymore and then the guy in front of me went and I was like well okay yeah. he, he did it Dang. that's yeah that's not good to have a uh have to pull your reserve mm-hmm. at airborne school mm-hmm but I mean, it wasn't because of malfunction; it was because of my own stupidity. <laughs> I dove out like a Superman. My left leg got caught up in there, and I couldn't shake it out. And then I was hit, like watching the silhouettes above me. And they're like, "Pull your reserve, Mills." I'm like, "Okay." Dang. Um, you pick up E6. So now you're now you're a staff sergeant. Take over a weapon squad. Mm-hmm. Which, which is the senior spot, but I was I went to work that day. On the I got picked, finished AL ALC or whatever. Um. Which is an E6 course. I went to my first sergeant and said, I have offers in, you know, second and first brigade, uh, 508. I'm I'm going to take those. I don't have a squad leader spot, you know, when I get back from this four-day vacation or four-day break. I came back and they gave me the senior spot. Here you nice. go. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, and Kelsey, she didn't really want you to go overseas again, did she? I mean, Yes and no. She understood it. But, I mean, obviously no wife wants uh, their loved one to go overseas or their husband to go overseas. But uh-huh. we just bought a house. The baby was just born. Quite frankly, we could use we could use the tax-free money. Mm-hmm. 100% we could use that the money that you get from being over there. And also we have the soldiers come to my house and have barbecues. And she sees how they look up to me and how I'm in charge of them. And it's this whole camaraderie and brotherhood thing. I had orders to Fort Hood. I had my sergeant major cancel them. Mm-hmm. I was like, ah, I, I don't know why you're kicking me out. He goes, I'm not kicking you out. I said, Sergeant Major, I have orders at Fort Hood. And he's like, do you not want to go? I said, no, I need to deploy with these guys. So he's just like, I'll take care of it. Yeah. The way you put it in the book is the reason I went overseas was because of the soldier next to me. The guys in my squad. Our job was to protect America and keep the Taliban at bay. I trained my men. I taught them all I knew. It was my job to take care of them. I couldn't imagine them deploying without me. And I mean, I was quite frankly upset when I got those orders. Um but they were building a new brigade and they wanted combat NCOs with over two years of combat experience to go help, you know, lead these guys. And mm-hmm. I was like, a noble, I get it, but not not for me right now. You're leaving. Um, and Josh is going away at the same time. Your brother-in-law, mm-hmm. your wife's brother, going away, same time. Here we go, back to the book. She was in tears, a beautiful mess. Josh was leaving on that same deployment too, but a day later than I was. So he came to see me off and support his sister. I hugged him and he hugged me back. Chloe was five months old and sleeping soundly in her car seat. She never woke up when I kissed her cheek. 
I unstrapped my daughter, picked her up, and cradled her tightly one last time in my arms. She inhaled deeply, smiled, and carried on sleeping. Then I waved goodbye. Walking away from my loved ones, I had to ask myself if this third deployment felt different from the first two. I had a child to think about now. A family. I knew there would be tense days and firefights ahead, but honestly, I wasn't afraid of dying. I wouldn't be reckless and make myself an easy target, and I didn't want to die. But I knew that if I got hit, then I got hit. If it happened, then it was meant to be. As a soldier, it's not like I talk about my emotions every day. I don't write poetry. I don't watch romantic comedies as a rule. I'm trained to kill people. That's what I do. You've got to be tough in the 82nd. You've got to be as hard as life. You don't want to show weakness ever, particularly with any of your guys around. When you're overseas and out in the middle of nowhere and you have 12 to 20 guys with you, you can't take a seat and say you're done. As a leader, I couldn't throw my helmet down and complain that things weren't fair. You have to make the best of it. You have to keep going. You've got to be as tough as they come. But even so, as I walked away from my wife and child and brother-in-law, the wind struck my eye, and I wiped away the wetness with the back of my sleeve. Harder going away on this deployment? Uh, a little bit, yeah. It didn't feel right. Um, I actually had a conversation with my brother-in-law in his garage with him. And I was like, you know, Josh, it's always a guy that you don't expect to get hit, that gets hit. And uh, we didn't start naming all the people from our deployments because we were the same brigade always, just different units. Mm-hmm. And I said, I just don't feel good about it, you know. I mean, not that I couldn't go where I wasn't going to go, but, but yeah, it was, it was harder, you know, my wife and everything. I was supposed to leave the next day. I went to work, and they're like, hey, look, we need you to take this truck of guys over. Um, can you leave tonight instead of tomorrow night? And I was like, well, yeah, but I got to leave work right now. I, and I got to go see my wife and my, my kid. And they're like, yeah, yeah, you can go. So I went. Um, but it, it does, you know, I wouldn't say each deployment's harder. Um, the second one wasn't hard for me to go. I mean, had to say goodbye, but part of my job. The third one was more, man, I hope I get, you know, to come back home. But you got to push those thoughts, you know, out of your head. You can't, I always tell people, you can't dwell on it. You can't think about it. You can't, you know, worry about what's going to happen. You got to just push through and whatever happens does happen. But, you know, as long as you're not reckless and careless, you know, you, you can't affect what your outcome is going to be anyway. So you might as well just keep pushing forward. Yeah. You, um, and now you end up on this deployment, the, the fob or the strong point that you're in so small, it doesn't even have a name. Just yeah, like out just, in the middle of nowhere. This is a strong point. <laughs> and you got there and what was the, uh, what was the environment like there? I mean, it, the the units that leave always give real great advice, um, and their commander told our commander, you're not going to really change a lot of stuff here with how the rules of engagement's now, um, because the rules of engagement over different presidencies or different uh, leadership changed. And they said, you know, when we go out, we take shaving cream, we line where we walked, you know, we come back, that's all you're going to do. And, of course, when we get there, we're hard charging. We're like, we're going to go here, 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 and here, and here. And the SOPs changed, the battle space all changed. Um, we lived in, um, it, like my first deployment, I was on a big fob. Second deployment, I was in a row of little out, uh, little strong points and fobs. Um, and then this one, we were just like, Hey, here you go. We're going to helicopter you and you're dropped off. This is you 360 around is all bad. And, uh, that's just how it was. So we'd go out the first day we went out, got a huge firefight. Um, 
and that's when my guys really understood. Like I, I was in a lot of schools. Like I went to college. I went to jump master school. Went to the advanced leadership course, the ALC course for E6. So when I got back and I got to uh, the weapons squad leader spot, some of the guys didn't know who I was from anybody. Got it. My first sergeant knew me. That's why I got the spot. But um, the other guys were like, "Why the hell is it? this guy jokes around? He doesn't. He's not mean. He doesn't smoke anybody. He's, he's you know really." I was polite, I guess, or mm-hmm. whatever. You know, normal everyday guy. I didn't have this chip on my shoulder. After our first firefight, like two of the guys that came from a different infantry unit were like, "Look, I didn't get why you were the, the squad leader. I didn't get how you got E six, um, and why you were in charge. But now I do because, mm-hmm. you know, when shit hits the fan, I was I was the guy that needed to be there. I guess. Yeah, I mean, this firefight going going to the book here. Uh, Sergeant Butler yelled, "I'm hit! I'm hit!" One of his teen leaders, Sergeant Marty Miller, ran over to him and swept his hands along Butler's body to look for blood. Miller ran back to our lieutenant to report we could he couldn't find any. And you you just um, you sprinted out into this riverbed during this firefights going on, and here you are. I'm still wearing my body armor, but I was essentially weaponless. If I'd kept my rifle, it would have only slowed me down. I ran over to where Sergeant Butler lay. He was probably 50 meters total away. It's my leg, he shouted. I can't put any weight on it. Shut up, I yelled. Get on my back now. Let's go. Without waiting for him to answer, I grabbed his right hand with my left, squatted down, and threw him over my shoulders in a fireman's carry. He was probably 185 pounds. I hefted him up and ran back to safety. So there you go. Just uh, I understand after you perform like that in a firefight your boys like oh yeah we we get it well we uh yeah so we were on one side of the wadi the dry riverbed and uh my co was like we're gonna cross this riverbed and we're like all right i mean that's really really open but let's do it so first second and headquarters whatever went across right and, so, ha- and like, just just i always have to point this stuff out because we have a lot of guys that are in the military that listen to this mm-hmm. and so you're just doing a classic cover and move one element's going to stay back on the high gr- or mm-hmm. on one side of the river to cover as the other other elements pushing across yeah and this was our first day in country so we we're just trying to learn the battle space because we were thinking about setting up another uh op or strong point on the on the wadi because there's a lot of traffic and um they start to move over, over there, and they get about 50 meters away, 75 meters, whatever, and then all hell breaks loose. Shots from everywhere. And third squad and fourth squad, weapon squad, which is me, are over on the river, you know, riverbed. And we start laying in. Everybody ducks down, takes cover, and, and I'm, I'm still standing, and I'm yelling, and I'm, one of my guns is shooting to the far left where he should be shooting to the far right. He's the right element. So I walk over, and I kick the team leader, you know. Actually, I think I might have smacked his head real hard. And I said, I said, you need to fix this and fix it now. And I told him where to shoot. I went back over and uh directed some more traffic and then some of the the other two team leaders from the third squad were just firing all their rounds after we already gained some fire superiority so i yelled at them and said you two know better you've been here before control your rounds control your fire and just make sure it's suppressing and then butler went down and we're like oh butler just got hit and he ended up tearing his mcl acl and uh, meniscus or whatever i mean did some pretty mm-hmm. bad damage and um my first start was like third squad go and get him and i I said, oh, first start, no more, but I got it. So I took my weapon off, and my M4, you know, and I was like, here, hold this for me. I tossed in my M4 because it was just, you know, it gets in the way, and I ran down. Then the A and A, and a were on the riverbank, right, kind of right behind where they're at. I said, you guys do not shoot. I said, don't you can shoot, you know, don't you shoot me in the back. Sorry about that. I ain't got to edit that, but or maybe you don't. But I was like, don't you guys shoot me. So I ran out and got him, took him back, and I set him down. So I ran uh, out 50, came back, and I took him about, about 50 to 80 behind the building, set him down. I sat down to get a drink of water. My first sight, like my first sight goes, Sergeant Mills, need you back here. I'm like, oh, okay. I ran back. I was like, oh crap, where's my gun? 
<laughs> and Marty had it. So Marty's like, oh, here you go. And I was the last one on the objective. Uh, we had to hike back two miles with Butler on a stretcher. Um, but I was the last one with the FO on the objective, uh, popping smoke for the Kiowas to come over and cover our movement. Damn. <clears throat> the two guys that yelled at the ones that told me they'd follow me at hell and back. Like, we get it now, Sergeant Mills. We'll follow you at hell and back. But, they were just kept shooting. I'm like, you guys are team leaders. You've been here. What are you doing? Yeah, that's awesome, man. Just reality check. It's it's uh it's another example. I mean, again, just you're talking about how you were in leadership position. You're just backed off a little bit. You're you're paying attention to what's going on instead of you being on your gun and shooting. You're backed off. You're watching, and that's what you need to do in a leadership position. You got to back off a little bit. You got to observe what's happening. You got to make sense of what's happening, and then you got to make sure that people are doing the right things. Yeah, I mean. It- you know, I, if I shot my gun, I mean, that's great. I got a chance to shoot my M4 and do what I had to do. But if I wasn't controlling my two heavy weapon squad, you know, like I had the 240. I was yeah. the king of the battlefield, if you will. And with the heaviest firepower that I was in charge of, if they weren't doing the job the right way, then we were all in trouble. Yeah. yeah. As I always say, God bless the machine gunners. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that it sounds like that deployment was, I mean, the the firefights that you talk about in here were a lot. <laughs> You're getting yeah. a lot of firefights every other day, if not every day. And so, so this one here, you went out and did this raid, um, and then you get word after you do this raid that there's no aircraft to come and pick you up from the raid and go ahead and walk back. Yeah. That's good times. Yeah, we uh, we went out. We um, I told my guys like, look, it's gonna be hellacious. Bring extra. We had each of us two thousand rounds of seven six two. Dang. And then we also had. Um, I always carried two thousand rounds of seven six two, or I guess depending on the mission, it, it would change between a thousand to two thousand. And then I'd carry twenty grenades, ten on my on my uh, armor, and ten in my bag, and then another uh, twenty forty mic mic because I had a two hundred three. Jesus. And then four hundred twenty. Um, five five six rounds like not in my magazines and i always had bro that's mag- like freaking 200 pounds yeah what yeah but without without ammunition you're kind of screwed that's true good point so i always had 12 magazines on my person and then i'd have you know 13th one in my in the chamber so i had 13 full magazines on me not because 13 is like some special number just because like my mag pouches that's what were, they carry. <laughs> yeah my mag pouch was you know too deep so i could have six three on each side um yeah and we went out there and we ended up getting like seven different firefights on the way back home. We had four detainees, and uh, I got I got um, I got put next to the gun the one time. And you know how it's called pigtail and rat tail. They call it when you put your seven six two link in, you have one side come out, and then you you know switch back it in, and the other side come out. So when you hook to a gun, it pulls out your bag, and then if you have another bag next to you, you clip it together. Mm-hmm. Well, we shot through all my rounds one and one of the things we shot through all the the seven six two rounds. I was like, oh, this is so much like lighter. And I got to another spot, and one of my my guys, Brandon um, Fessy, he was one of the guys that got hurt with me later on, but he was almost knocked, like passed now, so heavy. I said, oh, I take my bag. He goes, no, I got it. So I was like, give me your bag. Don't argue with me. And I was like, you need to make it back to the FOB. And then our uh, our PA the, that came out with us, awesome guy, Ranger uh, Regiment guy, and he turned into be a doctor. He was dehydrating really bad on the walk back, going hallucinations and stuff. So... Um, we decided, me and two other guys, three other guys, we went ahead and just like trot ahead and walk faster than everybody else, and like made it back to the fob first to get a get a um, MRAP to come get them. But, but yeah, and we actually one of the guys we detained, we 
we we detained all these guys. They had 600 pounds of homemade explosives, yeah, batteries, uh, RPGs. And the thing was a drone followed their RPG team back on a motorcycle to this compound, AK-47s. But we didn't get pictures with all their stuff. So we turned them over to the local national government, and they said, well, you didn't get pictures. These guys are, these guys are free, so they let them go. <laughs> Turns out the guy that uh, um, we had detained, one of them, because we hided them, fingerprints were all over my bomb and the, there was 13 bombs in a row and they were all over the bombs that the one that I hit so the guy that we captured as the one to put the bomb in Alpha Troop caught him the a took care of him damn so alright sorry did I bring it down to tone my bad no going to April 10th 2012 you get some intel in the afternoon that there's a ID out in the village, and you guys are going to go check it out. And here we're going to the book. We hiked only about 400 yards to the village. In addition to my weapons team, there were other squads along on patrol, a total of 28 soldiers. My lieutenant, Zachary Lewis, went to the left with the first and second squads heading to meet with the village elders, while the rest of our men went with me around the village to the outside to offer support in case of an attack. Along with my gun team, I had my platoon sergeant and a medic, Sergeant Daniel Bateson, with my group. All looked calm. It was just another day in Afghanistan, another normal patrol. We approached an abandoned ANA security post, two portable buildings, and stopped near the buildings to establish a security perimeter. I called for Fessy to bring the minesweeper. Check this area was the only order I gave. Fessy walked up a path used by villagers and scanned all the area around. He went up and back, and all was clear. No beeps. There was no reason to question anything. Fessy finished his minesweeping duties and went, up and went to set up on the far flank. I called Riot up to, to me and asked him where he thought we should put the gun. I knew where it should go, but I wanted to let him decide, making sure he knew his stuff. He motioned to exactly where I thought we should put it, a good spot, and I said, all right, go get Neff and bring him up here. That was it. Riot let, left to go get Neff, and as he did, I set my backpack down. The backpack touching the dirt was all it took. Such a simple act of war. My world erupted. I saw a flash of flame and heard, heard a huge kaboom. Hot, jagged piece, pieces of explosives ripped through me. I cartwheeled backward, end over end, hit the ground, and slammed my face hard against the compacted earth. Instantly, I felt my left eye starting to swell shut. I smelled burning flesh, my own. I tasted dirt, and I was wet with sweat and moisture just like I'd walked out of a hot shower. Dirt fell everywhere through the air. It rained down and clung to my eyes, nose, and mouth. I don't remember rolling over, but I must have because I glanced to the side and saw that my right arm was completely gone. I caught a glimpse of my left arm covered in blood and tattered. My arm trembled as if it had a will of its own. I looked down and saw my right leg was also gone. The stump looked like a piece of raw meat. The bottom of my left leg was still attached, but held on only by a few strands of skin. I saw all this in a flash. In an instant, I felt confusion but no panic. My first thought of what was of my guys. 
I flopped my remaining arm toward the microphone clipped to my carrier plate and somehow managed to push the button. I hit a bomb, I said. I need help. Bateson, my medic, rushed up to me along with Staff Sergeant Keith Hambright, our platoon sergeant. Only about 30 seconds had passed since the blast. Immediately, they applied tourniquets to hold whatever blood was still inside me. I'm not going to make it, I said. Leave me and go to save my guys. Shut up, Sergeant Mills, said Bateson. Let me do my job. I ignored Bateson and yelled my men's name like roll call. Fessy, Riot, Neff, to see if they were okay. Two were hit, Fessy and Riot, and other medics were already caring for them. They were bleeding, but nothing was missing. They yelled back that they were going to be okay. I calmed down. More soldiers ran toward me. Sergeant Alex's voice, another medic, wondered aloud where to best get IV access. There were no pulses to check except for my carotid artery. He quickly ripped open my vest, shaved a spot on my chest, and put an IV straight into my sternum. It hurt going in, and I must have howled because he yelled at me that I was going to be fine. I yelled back, Doc, shut up, I know. He and I both calmed down. Someone stuck a fentanyl pop in my mouth. It's a potent painkiller that releases as the pop dissolves. I downed the first one, spit out the stick, and asked for another. You won't need it, someone said. I was still thinking that I was going to die. I didn't want to show fear. I didn't want to freak out. You never want to show fear around your men. Let let my family know I dealt with it without crying, I said. Tell them yourself, someone grunted. He was being encouraging, letting me know I wasn't dead yet. I tried to see around me. I raised my head, wanting to get a visual of Fessy and Riot. Someone shoved my head back down. Lie still, commanded a voice. My one eye was swollen completely shut. The other eye was blurry from dirt. I tried to raise my head again. Again, I was pushed flat. My eyes were watering now, the dirt turning to mud. Time passed, and I didn't know what was happening. I mumbled something, but there was no reply. Only the steady whoop, whoop, whoop of a Black Hawk helicopter touching down nearby. Six men surrounded me, hefted me up, and carried me over. All told, it might have been ten minutes since the blast until the helicopter arrived. Fessy and Riot were first inside the helicopter. Everything was foggy and noisy, and I couldn't make out my surroundings clearly. My two guys were on seats, and I saw blood and bandages jumbled in their direction. Fessy had shrapnel in his face. Riot had shrapnel in his face, legs, and hands. Their images faded away. I focused on the noise of the rotors. We were in the air, and the flight medic were taking care of me. Riot yelled in pain. I tried to look around. Someone needed to attend to Riot. Where are the medics? One of the medics was talking to the pilots up front. Riot was yelling again. I looked in Fessy's direction and told him to calm down. Fessy nodded. Riot stopped yelling, and I winked at him to let him know he was going to be okay. It was all I could think to do. The flight medic was back in view. I could barely see him through the goop in my eyes. He wore a green flight suit and had a big Darth Vader helmet. I tried to speak. He gave me a quizzical look. I yelled as loud as I could, take your helmet off. 
He took his helmet off. Give my guys water and tell them they're going to be okay, I barked. Don't worry. I'll take care of them for you, he said. He was busy with some task on me that I couldn't see. A moment went by, and I added, I'm sorry. For what? The medic asked. For making you take your helmet off. He gave me a wry grin. I realized he'd been doing his job all, all along, doing it well. Both the medics had. I just couldn't see all that was happening around me. My mind went in and out. I was coherent but fuzzy in spots. In 15 minutes, the helicopter landed in Kandahar. Hospital staff rushed me straight to the operating table. We're going to put you under now, came a voice from above me. I'm fine, I said. Leave me alone. The mask came over my face and I tried to push it away. I remember asking one question. Am I ever going to see my baby girl again? A little intense. Yeah. Yeah. I uh, there might have been some more choice words I didn't put in the book. I said to the flight medic, I had yelled three times. And then the last time I threw the F word in there, take your effing helmet off. And he did. Uh, in my head, I was just thinking, Saving Private Ryan, don't go out yelling f- like for your mom like the medic when he got shot in the movie. And uh, I just, you know, I was a guy that I had a sniper around cracked next to my head, and I rolled in, and I was so embarrassed that I rolled away from it um, that I stood on top of the mountain and, and shot off a magazine and a half before I got back down. Mm-hmm. And uh, so just the whole don't show fear, I figured I can't change what happened right now. Uh, if I raise my pulse, I'm going to bleed faster. And, um, you know, thanks to my platoon sergeant, uh, Sergeant Hambright and Doc Bates and then Doc Voice, uh, I was able to maintain most of my blood. They must have slapped those things on you quick, tourniquets. Oh, within 20 seconds or 30 seconds, I think. And was was the aircraft airborne somewhere and got redirected to you? How did you guys get a helicopter there so fast? I don't know. We usually only went out when it was, when there was helicopters on station. Got it. because the threat was so so real um not that we need to talk about this and you guys edit it out but um at nighttime the taliban had free reign to do what they wanted we were told because of politics or whatever somebody said we couldn't go out at nighttime so we had the best nighttime capabilities Mm -hmm. but we couldn't go out so on the raid camera 30 feet in the air we would watch them on the screen and watch them put bombs in at nighttime and we couldn't shoot them couldn't shoot mortars at them and couldn't get them so uh it kind of sucked because you'd watch them put the bombs in, then the next day you're supposed to go out and try to find them. And that's why in 2012... So you say they wouldn't let you shoot them? Uh, they wouldn't let us go out and get them. They're like, no, I can't go out at nighttime. And we're like, but we can see them. I mean, I don't mind if you guys talk about it. No. You know, it doesn't bother me. I it's just, a reality. It's, you know, I don't like it. I don't want, you, know, you don't get political, so you don't have to on this with me, but just watching them put bombs in, knowing I had to go out and try to find them. And then the guy that I found, uh, or we walked back through, you know, seven different firefights and ten clicks... Uh, when they went out to do the surveillance on the site that got blown up at, uh, I blown up at, there was 13 in a row right there. And for some reason, the Minesweeper, Brandon went up and down, not once but twice, and nothing alarmed him. So there was six daisy chain together called Squad Killer. So you had to be the front guy to hit the first one, and then everybody behind him would get just taken out. So in a way, it was, it was probably better that I got hit that day than have somebody walk mm-hmm. past and hit it, and then everybody behind him get taken out too. Um, yeah, so just... 
just the politics of war, I guess, kind of sucked because I would watch them put bombs in. They couldn't shoot them. The Kiowas would come out station. The guy shooting at us 800 yards away would drop their weapons and walk away. And all of a sudden, they were no longer a combatant until the Kiowas were out of fuel. And we weren't going to run, you know, a 1,000 meters this way because if we did, then the guys would just take, leave their AKs and take off. So, you know, the red tape. But when I got blown up, I did radio my LT and tell them, yeah, I got hit. Uh, I don't know who, how bad it is. And I told my man to get away from me, and he kept fighting me off and telling me, let me do my job. Then the doctors worked on me for 14 hours, I was told, nine, uh, nine doctors and seven nurses. And two nurses for nine hours pumped air in out of my lungs to keep me alive, like took turns pumping air. Um, I was so low on blood, they did over 30 transfusions. Damn. And they didn't have enough in stock, so they were like on the big speaker in Kandahar saying, A, positive blood. And Universal, we need it now. And they were right from, I had a lot of tests I had to do for like, you know, possible HIV yeah. or things like that because it was just they like. They were just taking and putting it right in. Yep. Cool. All right. Thanks <clears throat> for your blood. We're going to put it right in them. Um, they knocked me out medically, you know, maybe unconscious. Um, and they kept me like that for four days. So. I just realized, you know, I always say God bless the machine gunners, but how about a little God bless the doctors and nurses for sure? Oh, absolutely. Damn. And the medics. I mean, yeah, and the medics. Every obviously. time I, I go and I speak, I, I uh, my one side's about perspective, and I, I tell them, you know, about the guys that have not made it back home, and I'm thankful to still be around and, and living, and I'm going to keep living, you know, f- for them so that, you know, their sacrifice wasn't in vain because what happened to me is nowhere near what happened to my buddy Francis Gene Phillips IV or Frankie, great friend of mine. He died. You know, left behind a wife and a four-year-old at the time. So I'm thankful for the medical um, advancements. In Vietnam, a lot of guys didn't come back like me. And I get sometimes people like, well, we just didn't see people like you during the Vietnam War. It's just, it's so sad this happened. And I say, well, that's because the guys, they didn't come back. You know, so, so yeah, I mean, then the doctors knew how to tie things in. And my calf muscles are on the end of my left leg now, I guess, for padding or something. Um, Just nuts, you know. But, um. That was on the 10th, and then I still had my left hand when they, they got done working on me. My wrist was blown out pretty bad, mm-hmm. but I had my finger, um, my index, my middle, and my thumb. And then two days later, in Bagram, they cut it off. My brother-in-law flew in from his outpost to Kandahar with me and escorted me. Because did you guys have to fill blue books out before you deployed? We call it the blue book. It's like, if I die, bury me with this. It's not a blue book, but we do we do, do that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I don't, it was, yeah, like a little blue pamphlet. They call it the, the blue book in the Army, but it's like, if I die, you know, I want my wedding ring. I want a picture of my wife and I and my kid or, you know, I want this music to play. Right. Basically playing your funeral is kind of morbid, but I guess it's it's all right. Um, but he was a guy I was supposed to escort my body back home. So he came to where I was at and then they shipped me to Bagram on April 12th. And April 12th, they took a look at my hand like, it's not going to make it. It's just necrotizing and, you know, limb length is a huge thing. So they cut it off. Um and then, so they didn't tell him they were doing it. So I were, rolled into surgery and I came back and then my hand was gone. Um, but I didn't know because I was still, you know, medically er, sedated. Mm-hmm. And then two days later, they went for the very first time on April 14th. And I woke up in the room, my brother-in-law, he was the one to tell me, but what I, I don't know if I put it in the book. I don't think I did. April 14th, actually my birthday. Yeah. <laughs> so my 25th birthday, I found out as a quadruple amputee. And it's funny because at my first appointment, when I didn't know about amputations and things, and Josh was just a friend of mine, not my brother-in-law, I was like, look, I'm very athletic. I play a lot of sports. If I if I lose a leg or something, just let me bleed out. Like, I mean, I was that naive mm-hmm. at 19 years old. Like, mm-hmm. if I lose a hand, just I don't I don't need to live, you know, because I didn't know any different. Mm-hmm. Where now I have I wake up, no arms and legs. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, at least I made it, I guess. Yeah. Um, meanwhile, back on the home front, 
going to the book Kelsey received a call at 11:53 a.m. her time while standing in her parents kitchen in Dallas Texas she was making a tuna fish sandwich and and then it's the commander on the phone and she describes you know he he tells her straightforward you know the severe injury and this is what she wrote in her journal I could not wrap my head around the pain my husband must be feeling I was all alone in the house and my actions upset my daughter to the point where she was screaming I could do nothing to soothe her. I couldn't pick her up. I couldn't look at her. My body felt like it was being torn in two. I wanted so badly to be able to talk to Travis and let him know I love him and that I thanked God that he was still alive. Then it continues on. Kelsey called my dad in Michigan, but when she tried to tell him what happened, little would come out. My dad knew something was wrong and kept repeating is he alive? Is he alive? Is he alive? And then your dad said this until you go through something like that yourself. It's hard to describe the feeling. There's no eating anymore. You don't leave the house. There's a lot of pacing around. You just wait. Whenever the phone rang, we jumped. You look at the phone and you don't know if you want to answer it or not. So it wasn't obviously it wasn't just you that got hit um, Two, you know your your family back home gets hit with the shock of all this and all also in your squad Theriot yeah, there which is the coolest name ever the riot, because it yeah. spells the riot and yeah. I mentioned him earlier um, But yeah, he got wounded He's, and, He was pretty bad. I mean he was able to get up and walk a couple days after he was it was he was sore for quite a bit, and uh, then and then Fessy got hit as well. He did, and luckily he had his sunglasses on um, because he his face was just blasted. But he still has his vision; he's doing great. Uh, just got engaged, so um, I mean, yeah, it's just a bad day. You know, my dad when he says he you don't eat and do that stuff, he actually was in the hospital with me and he got diverticulitis real bad, <laughs> and he almost died. He was so dehydrated, they had to go in and like give him surgery and like get he had to like for six months he'd probably be mad if i told everybody but he had a colostomy bag because he got so dehydrated um because he cared you know it was just so so worrisome for him <laughs> you know and then when i woke up i was kind of a dick i didn't want to like my brother-in-law was like you got to call you know kelsey you gotta call your mom and dad and i'm like i'm not talking to anybody because you know you're angry you're upset yeah. you're questioning um does god hate me am i a bad person what did i do wrong in life to get this i mean i pay my taxes you know i have a family why would this happen to me and then a little bit goes to like Forrest Gump where it's like Lieutenant Dan, like, no, what, what, what the hell, you know, why did I live through this? Um, you know, is this some kind of sick punishment that for something I did wrong? And, uh, I mean, you, you come to a realization like, Hey, you know what? Just sometimes bad things happen to good people. It is what it is. You can't change it. You might as well keep pushing forward. And it's nothing I did wrong in life. It's just what was slated. So, you know, that's what happened. Yeah. I, I thought it was interesting. Um, uh, the, one of the guys on the medevac bird like wrote a, wrote a, a Facebook to Kelsey and was explaining you know what it was like and and uh, yeah I mean here here's what he wrote my name is first sergeant wait the other medic the other flight medic with staff sergeant Hawkersmith you belong to a family of warriors other wounded soldiers in the aircraft were injured and screaming but your husband was more worried about more worried about them than himself. 
he described and then he describes like how you were doing the thing and tell him to take his helmet off and and uh you know here going back to the book his face was dirty and there was dust in his eyes but he never shed a tear I replay in my mind a moment when he looked at other wounded soldier at another wounded soldier and winked to reassure him that it would be okay. My crew is still on duty in his unit's area now. We go back to Kandahar on Monday, but we won't go back the same way. I'm an E8, but this E6 is the example for myself and others to emulate. I actually, uh, I had to get my, I was strapped down, so I had to get my arm out. Because when I was yelling at him, I was like, hey, take your helmet off. I said, take your helmet off. And I finally, I got my arm off. Dude, how the hell were you conscious, man? That's Uh, freaking crazy. Good genes, I guess. Uh, (laughs) You know, but I pulled my arm out and I I said, take your, you know, helmet off, F-word helmet off. And I put my hand over my head to motion, like, you know, as my arms drooping down or whatever. But I was just like, take your helmet off. And then he did. And I was like, get my guy's water. Tell me to be fine. And then later I did apologize for yelling at him. I was like, hey, sorry I yelled and swore at you. You know, but you know, at that time, I, I guess it maybe it was easier for me to like think about everything else going on except for myself. Yeah. You know, and I just, I just figured it is what it is. Whatever's going to happen is going to happen, and it doesn't do me any justice to scream out or yell or or be afraid. I mean, hey, I can't change what's going on right now, so just do the best I can to you know help the situation. Yeah. And and Josh shows up like you you know you just talked about this and and Josh just saying hey I'm going to tell it to you straight. Because mm-hmm. you asked, you said to Josh, hey, am I paralyzed? And I'm going to the book here. No, man, Josh said, you're not paralyzed. You don't need to lie to me, I whispered. I can take it. I'm going to tell you straight. Josh knew I'd want to know the truth. You're not paralyzed, but both your arms and legs are gone. The date was April 14th, 2012. Still the same day as when I'd heard the news. I was a quadruple amputee it was my 25th birthday damn you talk about the pain and i think this is something that people don't get myself included um uh the pain was so bad part of the pain was the thought of what i'd become i could hardly picture the new me yet the pain was more than emotional it was a physical pain It coursed through my body. I felt like I was on fire. I tried to focus on my breathing and take stock of why my pain was so bad. Even with all the medications flowing through me, it still felt like I was in a red-hot vice. I could hardly take it. I knew Josh would never lie to me, but my arms and legs still felt like they were attached. My hands felt like they were burning, like someone was clamping them inside of an industrial furnace, but my hands weren't there. The flames were eating away my ligaments, my nerves, my skin, my legs, my phantom legs were clamped in that same fire. Bolts of agony surged from limbs that weren't weren't there and registered to a brain that still was. The pain came and went, came and went, came and went. Josh started in his seat and leaned, or started in his seat and leaned closer. Travis, you need me to get the nurse? Nurse? I didn't say anything. I was itchy and sweating bad. He pressed a buzzer, then then went out and got a cool cloth and laid it on my forehead. The nurse came in and upped my morphine. Just before I went under again, everything that I'd always drilled into myself rushed through my mind. Never show fear. Never let your guys see you in pain. Don't cry out. Even when I'd been lying on the ground, right after the blast, I'd felt pain then, but I hadn't showed it. When that IV was shoved through my chest, that was 
chest that was painful but I wasn't gonna complain then you don't let people down you just don't but this time the pain was so bad it was still so bad even with more painkillers in me now so bad so bad so bad this time I wanted to do the unthinkable Two words rose and began to vocalize within my throat. Josh, I said, yeah, what do you need, buddy? I swallowed and whispered two words. I quit. Yeah, not good. I uh, I don't know what, I mean, this is a lot of pain, I guess. I don't know why I'd... You know, you, you sit there and you question, like, am I going to be a burden on my family? Right. Why, how, you know, my wife, should she stay with me? I mean, what do I have left to offer? Um, my daughter, am I going to be a monster when I get to see her finally? And then it's like, why did I live through this? Why, w- you know, why did I make it? Not that I'm, I guess, angry I lived or at the time, of, you know, when that was happening. I wasn't so much angry. It's just more of a question, like, why? Well, what's What's the purpose? Why not just let me... Go out. My wife gets you know four hundred thousand from the government, and then she can go remarry and have somebody that's able-bodied and and live a happy life. But that you know, a lot of questions are you know when you're sitting in the hotel room, or I mean, a hospital bed, you know, in the hospital room, and you just got to stare at the ceiling the whole time. You just never know what what to think. In the military, it's easy. Everything is laid out for you. This is yeah. our mission today. This is our plan. It's what we're going to do. This is how we're going to get it done. There, it's just all unknown. And that pain, like from missing limbs it sounds freaking horrible oh yeah i mean it was like a spike getting drove through my heel uh fingernails getting like just ripped off and then seared and it was just it was bad what causes that uh well i mean a lot of it is phantom limb pain so your nerves try to find where your hands and your feet are and if they can't find it they try to redirect and keep trying to find it so it's just one excruciating you know zap to another and then they uh and you're you're probably gonna talk they had like experimental um things they tried on me because it was so bad and after the second one they tried um i was like oh i feel a little better and then the the doctor like was all excited and i was like oh no the pain's back and i went you know got all yelling out in pain and stuff and he just he actually cried he felt so bad because it was to the point where they got to find some cure Mm -hmm. or i'm gonna be so um um just an agony yeah agony or I'll, i'll be so used to the medication um, uh, that the doses are going to get to the point where I'm just going to OD on them, you know, because I'm going to be yeah, so so uh, accustomed. I can't think of the word right now; it's killing me. Uh, like your tolerance, is to- yeah, my, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, my tolerance would be so high that I'm just going to end up ODing. Damn. Of course, you, I was kind of you know you wonder where you get your sense of humor. You're telling your dad what happened, and you're like, I stepped on a mine, went flying through the air, I did a 180, it was crazy. Well, Travis, my dad said, the important question is, did you look good doing it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, I think I did. Yeah. Oh, man. Um, and meanwhile, Kelsey, she, she, you know, you've been voicing some of these concerns like about, hey, can I even be a good dad now? Can I, am I going to be a burden? You're kind of telling Josh some of those things. And she told, or he told Kelsey, and here we go, back to the book. My brother told me that Travis is nervous to see me because he doesn't know how I will react or if I will continue to love him as my husband. These worries seem so trivial to me because I will love him through sickness and health until death do us part. I did not use those words lightly when we got married. 
I will be by his side every day for the rest of our lives, whether he likes it or not. I know his natural reaction will be to push me away because of embarrassment or feelings of letting me down, but I just wish I could constantly reassure him that my love for him is unwavering. Yeah, I mean, when I saw her, I told her she should go. I said, you know, hey, you should take what we have. The house is yours. The cars are yours. Sell mine, you know, whatever, and do what you need to do, and I'll financially fund whatever I can. You know, and she was like, that's not how this works. <laughs> You I know, want that handicap parking, you know, <laughs> what she said. So it's like. Oh, uh, man. You, uh, uh, there's like a level of luck involved when you get married. I don't care who you are. Um, oh, you yeah. Know, like, you could easily marry, like, Satan. <laughs> you know, and I know, I know you, I know plenty of guys that have made some really bad, I can't even call them bad decisions because just like, Okay, I understand if you have this great courting thing and all that and you're whatever that you can make a good decision and that's great But like a a lot of guys in the military you're young and you're like, you know what? We're getting married and there's just like a flip of the coin and you you got a saint I mean, I literally did flip. I'm like 17 days in person. You know what would be great? We just (laughs) went to Mexico and then we're gonna get married and then we just got married. Yeah, let's do that Let's be a great story for everybody whether it works or not (laughs) Yeah, man, you scored for sure uh, and she got lucky to have me too. <laughs> well, I didn't really pick that up, but um, okay, we'll mm. go with it. Yeah, we'll keep <laughs> moving on. Hey, how was it when you saw Chloe for the first time? So you need to get back to Walter Reed. I did uh, April seventeenth. Uh, I got back, and um, the first time I got to see Kelsey wasn't that Hallmark moment. You know, it's like, oh my gosh, I love you so much. It was actually I was getting rushed in my right, uh, one of my right leg ripped open. And I'm like, Mrs. Mills, you're in charge of medical history now. You have to sign this piece of paper. Um, he has to get two inches of cough his right leg. We need your consent. You know, consent. And she's like, what? And she almost passes out. And they're like, Mrs. Mills. I'm like, Kelsey, just sign the paper. And I'm yelling, just sign the paper. It's okay. And she signs it. And that's the first time I got to see her. Just real quick. Yep, go ahead and hack him up. And they went and took my leg two inches off on the right and resealed it. And the next day is when I tell her, like, you know, this isn't probably anything that you signed up for. You you can go. And, you know, you're no, it's no big deal. I, I'm not worried about it. And she's like, nope. Not how this works. We'll get through this together. Damn. And then awesome. they, you know, they induced me into this coma later on because the pain was so bad and I was getting my tolerance level built up for the pain meds. And uh, she sat on my bed like 20 hours a day and, and I, knowing I wasn't going to wake up for five days. Like we're going to put him out for five days. So, yeah. So this was crazy. Uh, reading about in the book, you, you're in such horrible, horrible pain, like undescribable pain. Is this basically an experimental thing, procedure that they did on you? Yeah. I'm the uh, second in the nation to ever have the ketamine coma in 30th in the world and so, so a lot of case studies on me. The ketamine coma is 600 milli- milligrams of ketamine per hour. Yeah. So it goes around in, the clock. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to, well, it, it's based on like weight and things. So I'm sure like everybody's okay. different measurements, but uh, they, when they did it, you go in and then it just circulates through. It's supposed to reset your brain to think where your nerves end is where they end. And you know, you come out and, it's just you hallucinate like crazy. Yeah, and Anything that's, on TV is what was real life to me. Yeah, no, the, I'll, I'll hit some highlights from your hallucinate. Because when, you get, when yeah. you get done out of the coma, you're in a coma for five days, mm-hmm. which is just black nothing, right? Yeah. There's no nothing, nothing there. Then you go into hallucinations. You got um, chasing kids that stole things from Walmart. You got Genghis Khan that you're out with Genghis Khan. You're, a SWAT team is coming to get you. You got you and your cousins are riding skateboards in a TV reality show, you got yourself playing hockey in the NHL. 
Um, I was particularly concerned about a 50-year-old go-go dancer that crawled on a leash down the hallway of Walter Reed. That one made me a little bit nervous. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was a service dog, apparently. (laughs) Kramer from Seinfeld stops by. So so you go through these massive hallucinations. That's freaking weird. Yeah, I mean, it got to the point where I'd get on my tangents, and they said for the first, like, seven days, you know, it's going to be bad. Then after that, it'll start to fade out. And at 10 days, you should be able to tell when you're having one or not. But I remember... My father-in-law come in one morning, and the Caps game was on the night before, and I was watching it. I was like, I scored nine goals with Ovechkin. I had a triple hat trick. He's like, oh, that's that's great. And then I thought that way I got blown up. When I woke up the very first day, I thought that this guy from my hometown made a derogatory comment towards my mom, my wife, and my daughter, and my buddies, and I jumped in the car and chased him and went off the road, and I smacked a tree, and I killed my two best friends. And like I made my mom and my wife. And you like, full on oh, believed those 100%. I told my brother-in-law the story just as intently or intense as I told my wife. And he listens like, oh yeah, and everybody was just going with it instead of trying to like argue with me. And they're like, we're just gonna go with this. Mm-hmm. And I called and left my my buddies a message, and I'm like, I'm so I I, don't, I hope you're not dead. <laughs> and then I finally came out of the hallucination, and I realized what happened. And my brother and I walked back in. I was like, hey man, thanks, you dick. He goes, well, I didn't want to tell you any different. And I was like, yeah, no, I understand. You know, that's like don't text when you're drunk or whatever. Yeah. Don't don't yeah. don't call people, and leave messages when you're on seven day hallucinatory yeah. trips. And I only left two messages, but they were to my best friend, so it's cool. <laughs> and both of them was, "I'm sorry, I killed you." Like, hey man, I hope you're not dead. <laughs> I think I killed you. And uh, and then I got to the point where I could tell what was going on. Yeah. So I like I started to have another one, um, and then I was like, "Oh, that's hallucination." And then finally, I got to the point where I was playing with people. Like Josh was in my room, and I was like, "Josh," he goes, "What?" I goes, "I see dead people." <laughs> I said, what? You're serious? I'm like, no, I'm just kidding. He's like, okay. And then I started looking at the ceiling. I was like, oh, they're all around me. He's like, what, what, where, where? I'm like, oh my gosh, Josh, everywhere. And I like jabbed him. And I was like, no, oh, you son of a... So I started messing with people once I got the hang of it. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, and that kind of like did it though, right? Like, Yeah. Yeah. So I did about five more months of pain pills. Um, and then finally, like in October, I was home for Thanksgiving in North Carolina at my house at Fort Bragg. And I was just like, you know what? Kelsey came in. I was like, I don't want them anymore. I'm done. She's like, you can't just quit these. And I said, no, really, I'm done. So it was like five days of pain, and then now no medication, nothing, I'm good to go. So the ketamine coma, and my documentary, you know, it says, I wouldn't do it again. But that was five months after the fact, so I was still, like, doing pain pills and stuff. Mm. Or four months after the fact, I guess, because it was in September. Um, But looking back, like, that was the best best thing for me, to get me past the, you know, the pain part, and then... Onto my recovery. And you were the second person that ever had that done? I guess in the nation. That's crazy. I guess. Yeah. Um, I thought this is a great talking about your kind of transition mentally going back to the book. Back in normal days, I loved the challenge. The quest to succeed in the army had always been a challenge for me. My situation now as a quadruple amputee held out the same sort of dare to succeed. Sure, if I could have changed things, I wouldn't have been in the situation, but I couldn't change things. Being a quadruple amputee was my new reality. I could quit for good. I could shut myself off from the world. I could will myself to die. Or I could fight forward and keep on living. Legit. Well, I mean, it came down to a choice at the end of the day. Um, I was still here. My wife's going to stay on my side. My daughter, who I think is going to think I'm a monster, still laughs and snuggles up with me. And, you know, I mean, when she first saw me, I thought she was going to be really afraid. But then short arms, short legs, fuzzy chest. I look like a teddy bear. She's like, oh, another toy, you know. But this one can talk. Yeah. Cool. And uh, interactive. I've never been stern with my mom. I did break my mom's nose one time. A whole different story. 
karate? Uh, no, my dad and me were slap boxing in the kitchen, which meant I was 17. My dad was trying to mess with me, but yeah. if I slap back, he'd be like, you think you can take me? And I'm like, no, bro, I thought we were just playing. But he slapped at me, and my mom was behind me, and I caught her the back of my head. The scariest day of my life. Um, you don't make her mad. And But anyway, so I was only stirring one time. My mom, I woke up, you know, and I was supposed to get all the rest I could. And I said, where's Chloe at? She's like, oh, they already came to visit, but you were sleeping. And I was like, don't ever let me sleep through that again. That's the whole reason that I'm able to still keep functioning is because of my daughter and you know, uh, being there in my wife, but uh, you know, the mental part was the worst mm-hmm. at four o'clock to six o'clock at night. I couldn't have the lights on in my, in my apartment, something to do. I thought it was like the operating table. I start sweating real bad. I just, I mean, now I'm fine, but mm-hmm. the first, like, I don't know, probably five, six months, I was just like, no lights at this time. It's quiet hour. <laughs> And things like that. And man, I started watching, like I watched a you know video of you as you were training, as you were now relearning everything. Look, and I, I never really understood when people say, "Oh, you, you got to re, you know got to relearn to walk," and you got to relearn. And I didn't really make sense of it, but it's really clear to see when you watch your progression what that looked like, like how you were clearly relearning how to walk. Like I never understood that, but when you watch the videos and the the progression that you made, you can see that that's what it's, it looks like. When you first stood up, I'm like, oh yeah, it looks like he's learning how to walk. And sure yeah. enough, you got better and better and it's pretty amazing. And and uh, two things you're gonna find out when I, when I was going through my uh, recovery. The first thing, I learned how to walk with my daughter, which was kind of cool. They got me little short legs and I was stumbling around and she was stumbling around, we we're holding hands. And the next thing you found out, my love for Philly cheesesteaks. <laughs> Because I do less workouts and stuff like that at the gym, you know, as you go. But I went from 250 to 140, and I was real skinny. And then all of a sudden, I start getting fatter and fatter and fatter because of Lyrica and the medication. And I was just like, oh, I love Philly cheesesteaks. So I'm trying to work on that now. <laughs> but my progression is I got better. I got fatter, too. It's embarrassing. And you got but, a visit from a guy named Todd Nicely. Mm-hmm. And that must have helped out a lot. Uh, my competitive edge did. He walked in uh, on his fake legs and two fake arms, and he first thing out of his mouth was, hey, man, welcome to the club. <laughs> I was like, I don't want to be in your club. <laughs> he said, kind of late now, don't you think? And I looked at myself, and I was like, oh, you got me there. <laughs> and uh, as he walked over, I said, you want a ginger ale? And he heard me wrong, and he went over to the counter, uh, or the sink, and underneath the sink was, was a 12-pack of ginger ale. I got hooked on it like crack at the hospital. I got off it now, but either way. He bends down on one knee, Bends down on his other knee, reaches on with his fake hand, gets it out, pops the top of his other arm, and walks over and hands it. He goes, here you go. I'm like, oh, no, I was asking if you wanted one. But before I got the full sentence out, I said, how'd you do that? He's like, hey, man, I'm Todd, and I'm the second ever. Welcome to the club. You're the fourth. Uh, quadruple amputee to make it back home. You're going to be fine. I live in Missouri with my wife. I drive. I have a boat. I do whatever I want. I walk. It just takes time. And uh, he's like, I'll even work out with you tomorrow. You know, this is like... I'm still thinking I'm in hallucination mode. This is this is like maybe eight, nine days after my my uh, ketamine coma. And he's like, I'll work out with you tomorrow. So the doctors come in, and I'm like, hey, I got to work out today. And they're like, you can't work out. You know? And I was like, no, no, seriously, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work out with Todd nicely. He said I can work out at 1 o'clock. And they're like, well, you're not ready. And I had to let him know. I was like, I don't know what you don't get, buddy. We're, <laughs> I'm working out today. And I, he said, I'll think about it. So I called him every half hour, four hours straight to find said I could. And I went and met Todd and... And Todd did a workout, and I laid on my stomach with a pelvis uh, pad under my under my stomach or whatever, mm-hmm. so that I stretched my pelvis muscle back out, and he pat on my back, and I fell asleep 20 minutes. Best workout I've ever done. But uh, I started my recovery that day. And in, as far as the physical, it was easy. Uh, I was, you know, I liked the, the physical challenge. Uh, the mental was the hardest part for me. I mean, bar none, it was, it was the worst. You know, I couldn't look at myself in the mirror for a while there because I didn't like what I saw, mm-hmm. you know, seeing my, my arms gone, the scars. Um just the overall mess that that I was, 
and um, thinking that I was going to be a burden and all that. So it just that's just how it went. So the more capable you got, the more comfortable you got in your new skin. Yeah. Well, I found out that they let you go for one hour and then of physical therapy and then one hour of occupational therapy, and then they let me do another one and another one till it turned into four hours of of each. So eight hours. I was putting eight hours a day at the gym in my recovery. Well, at the gym and occupational therapy, learn how to use my hands, how to wash myself again, how to dress myself again, uh, learn how to drive, learn how to do all that stuff. But it, it took 19 months of at Walter Reed. 13 months in paperwork was after that to get out, but <laughs> government. Uh, and you, you, um, you eventually went and met your guys when they came home, though. That's I did. Freaking awesome. I did. I set some goals. Um, when I was in the hospital on my birthday, I called my wife and my mom and dad, and I was basically really short. Hey, guys, what's up? I'm fine. Love you. Bye. That's all I wanted to say. I didn't want to talk and have a conversation and go over what happened to me. Um, I kept it very short. But I told my brother-in-law, I said, I have to call my guys in my unit. You need to find the number to my strong point and let me talk to them. So there's a picture going around where I had a, uh, a baseball cap. Or no, I was out on patrol, and I had sleeves rolled up and – uh, helmet off, sunglasses. I mean, everything out of standard as they, as you know, they have standards or whatever. And I got a hold of my sergeant major. And I said, Sergeant major, I'm so sorry. I understand if you got to take my rank. Uh, I shouldn't have been out of uniform. I do apologize. And now the pictures go in public. And he's like, you're crazy, dude. Like just get better. You're fine. And then I got a hold of my, my guys and I told them guys, I'm fine. I'll be okay. And I'll be there when you get back from Afghanistan, I'll be there at the, you know, the ramp to give you guys a hug on my tall legs. And it took me a while. I got my tall legs that morning. When they got back, I had to work out three hours. Dang. And then the tall legs don't bend, but like not the ones I'm wearing now, but they're, they make me at least six foot tall. Well, you can't take those legs home unless you can stand up when you fall down. So the whole day the therapist walks up and says, trust fall. And they knock you down. And you're like, you, what the hell? Like, that's not a trust fall. You're supposed to catch me. <laughs> I'm supposed to close my eyes and trust you're going to catch me. And they're like, that's the catch. You got to get yourself back up. <laughs> therapists are great. No, I had I had two of the best therapists uh, that, that you could ask for. No, I'm Carrie and Joe, and they got me you know, back to where I was at. But I did meet my guys and the first one of the first people I got to hug was Doc Bateson, you know, and say, "Hey, man, thanks for all you did." And then you end up doing a five k, five k run. So, well, I mean, I that, was, run that, that was like yeah. another goal. Yeah. So Todd Nicely came in when he met me. He had four firefighters also for Tunnel the Towers five k they do in New York City, and they also they partner with Gary Sneese and they build houses and things like that for guys that have been through traumatic injuries. And they were like, hey, we're going to have a 5K in September. We're going you know, we'll push you. I'm like, I'll walk it. And they're like, well, yeah, but like, we'll push you. It's no big deal. And I was like, no, you don't understand. Like, I'm just going to walk it. And they're like, well, you don't have legs yet. But if you do walk it, that's cool. So I went out to New York City after my daughter's birthday uh, the day after and walked the 5K. Uh, I came out of the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel thinking, okay, I'm going to sit down now. Like, I'm tired. My back hurts. I got a mile, you know, 1.2 miles or something to go. My right leg, I had completely rubbed raw. And I was <laughs> bleeding inside my socket. And I was like, it, it's good. I, I've, I've met. A goal. I've walked over to, you know, two miles now. And uh, I came out of the tunnel, and there's 343 firefighters with banners around their neck for 9-11. I thought, geez, okay, well, if those guys and gals can go up down those flights of stairs and then ultimately die, um, you know, trying to save lives, I can finish this. So I did. I was sore. It was bad. But I did did finish it. And then um, eventually, you're like you said, you're driving now. Mm-hmm. You went out and did, like, mountain biking and skiing and all this other kind of just getting after it basically for, for better for lack of a better term um and then you and then you retire you retire from the from the army and and what's your next move your next move is you figure out you're gonna get a house and you're gonna move to 
I had to move to Maine. My wife is from Maine uh, originally. Uh, the heat doesn't do well with amputees because your blood circulates faster. And it comes back warmer. When you release heat from your body, it's head, hands, and feet. So I'm missing, you know, four of the five. And then my legs are capped off. So if I wear pants or if I wear shorts, it's the same. Mm-hmm. There's no air hitting a third of my body. And, uh, yeah, so we, we decided we we're going to move to Maine. Um, we, we did start a nonprofit to help with care packages at first. And then we grew it to the retreat center that we have here in Maine. And um, it really through my work at Walter Reed. When I was at Walter Reed, I was such an upbeat person. I was the same person as before the blast. I was still going in and having Kesha Fridays because it made people annoyed, but other people <laughs> loved it. Um, Wait, having what Fridays? Kesha Fridays. I'd go put my take my oh. phone, I'd turn on Kesha on Pandora, yeah. and we'd just rock out. And yeah, uh, the I, reason I unfortunately saw videos of you like dancing, mm-hmm. which cannot be unseen apparently. <laughs> Burn into your retina. You're welcome. But, uh, <laughs> You know, they started to ask me if I'd meet people upstairs, and it started out, hey, you know, Travis, we have a guy upstairs. I can't tell you his name or his room number, but if you could talk to him, really help. He's not in 41, and he's not in 43. But if you could find him, you uh-huh. know, and I'm not a Marine, so, I, you know, obviously I'm smart enough to find that it was number 42. <laughs> I don't eat crayons. Uh, but anyway, so I uh, would go up and talk to him, and then that turned into like, hey, we have PFC Johnson. He's missing two legs. Um, his mom, his mother-in-law, and his two kids are here. Can you go see him? I told him you'd be up around this time. And uh, that's how the book got uh, started. My documentary got started. And then the foundation was just because all the nonprofits at Walter Reed doing great things. Kelsey and I wanted to give back some way, shape, or form. And this is how we've decided, you know, that we can give back the best. Yeah. So um, what? Tell, tell us more about the foundation then. I mean, uh, so the Travis Mills Foundation was started really just for care packages overseas. And then I went out to Colorado to learn how to go downhill mountain biking and doing things. And then I realized that Walter Reed does a great job of taking the service member out there. The only thing that the government uh, doesn't lack, but because of the funds have to go to the soldiers, they don't get to bring all the families. Like my wife got to go because I needed assistance um, and things. But a lot of the guys that could take care of themselves couldn't bring their loved ones. And that's fine. That's okay. But we thought we could do something in that that, uh, space. My whole reason for getting better was my wife and my daughter, easily. So we started bringing families out. We did it for one week of a year, and we brought families out and showed them how to do things adaptively, kayak and canoe and things. Then we did another one, and it went so well, we thought, well, we should buy a property. So we bought a property. It's supposed to be a $500,000 project. Now it's a $3 million project. Uh, we did our first week of program, or I mean, first year of programs this year. Uh, we did seven weeks, 56 families, and we bring them up. Uh, we host eight families per week, up to 40 people, and we show them how to do things. We have a place on the water for kayaking and canoeing and tubing and boating. And we just um, do horseback riding and archery and just all these activities. We have a ropes course. And we just say, you know what? I understand what you're going through. I understand it can get tough. Here's a network of people that are just like you, whether you live in Chicago in the inner city or you live in the plains of Montana. Reach out. Understand that these families are going through the same thing. Um, feel comfortable when you come here that you can fall out of a kayak and nobody's going to freak out. They're going to understand what you're going through. And it's just as much of... Uh, a place for the the loved ones, you know, the wives mm-hmm. that can talk to other wives or or spouses, and the kids can run around and see the. You know what? My dad has one leg missing and one arm, but this dad has two legs missing, and that's pretty cool because they know what we're going through. And after our first year of operations and running, it was such a great success. We're going to do strategic partnerships with other nonprofits that share our mission, and they'll donate what it costs for a week, and they'll run their own uh, retreats up here as well. So we're uh, talking with goal star member families as well as PTSD and TBI because right now I focus on limb loss or paralyzation. But this hopefully will run 40 to 45 weeks out of the year. It's all donation-based, and 
the cool thing is like as the president and the six other board members I do have, we don't take a dime. We never will. We're auditing ourselves right now so we can get on the CFC, the combined federal campaign. Mm, and nice. it's all about giving back. So it's it's been really rewarding and, and fulfilling and I'm I'm glad to be the uh, out there helping these families cope with their uh, situation and tell them that there's other people out there like you. Keep going. Never live life on the sidelines. And most importantly, never give up and never quit. If people want to help this organization, what's the best way for them to do that? Visit the website, travismills.org. It has uh, all the information on the foundation. There's ways to donate online. There's ways to do volunteer options. You know, We had people fly in just to volunteer for the week and help us out. And there's also, you know, ways to do corporate sponsorships. We had Wayfair come in, donate all the furniture. New Balance came in, donated um, to us and things like that. So we're growing. Um, we believe in our mission. We know we can do this. And there's other things we want to get accomplished out here. Um, we need to build a multipurpose center. Uh, we have a pool going in and things like that. But it's all about giving back and, and uh, the mindset of the service member that we're trying to host and the family. The book, Tough As They Come. That's what we read today. It's a, it's a great book. I read a s- small chunks of it. Um, yeah, you can pick that up uh, anywhere where they sell books. And what about the documentary? So the documentary, uh, it's called Travis, A Soldier Story. It was done in 2014. And it was actually uh, unveiled at the GI Film Festival. And um, we took first place in 55 short films. Uh, I got to meet Marcus and Melanie Luttrell that night. It was really, really great to meet them. And now Netflix has signed us on for a two-year run. So we got on Netflix in May. So if anyone wants to watch that, it's on Netflix. It's called Travis Soldier Story. Um, and it just tells the whole story. It just has iPhone footage of everything that Kelsey and I went through. Yes. And the two, really, that, cool. the two medics that saved my life are actually are reenacting me getting blown up. And the two guys who got hurt are in the documentary as well. Yeah. And my brother-in-law. So all the people that were there are in the documentary. No, between the book and watching the documentary and you get to see the faces and everything, it's really uh, – it's really cool. It's real powerful. And um, what about social media? How's um, your social media presence, it, Mr. It's, Popular? It's not yours by any <laughs> means. Uh, we, we're about 60,000 60, and some strong on our Facebook page. I do little videos. Uh, my daughter learned how to tie her shoes the other day. We taught her in the morning and, you know, by like we taught her at like seven by nine o'clock. She's tying it by herself, giving an intro uh, to tying your shoes online. But it's just SSG Travis Mills is my page if you want to. Check it out, share my story. That that really helps yeah. us out. And it's Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You're on all three. SSG Travis Mills. That's that's where you can find it. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, you 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 put the the last thing in the book, like the last line in the book. You say to live in freedom, to go forward, to love your family, to make something of your life, to never ever give up, to never quit. That's success. And obviously, um, in my opinion, if if never giving up and never quitting is the definition of success, then I think you're the most successful person I've ever met in my life, brother. For oh. real. Well, I appreciate that. I just we we realize the people that depend on you, the people that went into all this, and the lives that are lost. I mean, you've you've had a lot of buddies, I'm sure, that didn't make it back home. Um, my situation is not not life ending. My situation is just. I got a couple more steps in the morning, put my legs on, put my arm on, take my daughter. Tomorrow is actually my daughter's orientation at school. I get to take her. My wife and I just had a baby. Um, and I named him, I named our little boy after my two medics. His name's Dax, uh, D-A-X, after Daniel and Alexander for the medics that saved my life. So thankful to still be here uh, through all the smoke and the dirt and the dust. 
uh, it's all settled now and I'm, I'm living life to the fullest and doing the best I can to make sure that people understand life goes on and to never, ever, uh, give up and never quit. Anything else? Any closing thoughts? I mean, I just obviously want to thank everybody who went into this. I mean, from my unit on the ground, I know I was a heavy guy, you know, walk around weight was 400 pounds. So to get, you know, with all my gear on and all that, to get me out of there was great. Uh, the medical staff, doctors, nurses, um, physical therapists, occupational therapists, everybody. Uh, obviously my family that went into it. I want to say thanks for being there by my side, my beautiful wife and my wonderful children, um, for, you know, really accepting what happened and moving forward in life and just, uh, you know, let everybody know, you know, you can't always affect your, your situation you find yourself in, but you always can affect your attitude. And that's, that's where I find the most, uh, I guess the most realization in my situation. I can't always affect if I drop something on my hand, you know, I can't pick it up right away or I have to do something weird and get mad about it. Cause getting mad doesn't, I'm getting mad doesn't do anything. So I always try to keep my attitude positive and keep pushing forward. But thanks for having me. Also, I want to thank you for having me on here. Both you gentlemen, I didn't look at you very much. I'm sorry. I know we talked about this earlier, but he said not, you said not to. Yeah. Yeah. Try not to. It's it's at your discretion for sure. (laughs) I got to redo this then so I can look at you more. You're all good. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. Hey man, thanks for coming on. Um, Of course, thank you for your service to this great nation. Not only as a soldier and a leader on the battlefield, but for your continued service that you're doing today for veterans and also for the the gift that I think you give everybody that hears about you or comes and contacts you with you in any way, and that is just a living example of grit and of determination and of will and I, I just think you're the absolute model of what it means and what people can accomplish if we do as you say and that is to go forward never give up and never ever quit thanks for coming on brother thanks for having me and after a little administrative break Travis has left the building pretty damn awesome yeah to have him on man yeah um yeah any and every excuse that a person might have as a human being just got destroyed yeah yeah and it he really kind of illustrated how hard it got for the time when he was like, when he said, Oh, I quit in the yeah. hospital. Yeah. And it's kind of like, it makes just kind of when you're around him now and you see just how he is, yeah. it kind of really brings to light how good he is now. Yeah. You know? And, and he couldn't at that moment in time, and when people get into that darkness, they don't see, they, they can't they can't see the future. They can't see that things are gonna get better. They can't see, you know, for him at that point in time, there's no way it was gonna get good. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. yeah, that's very true. Very true. Yeah, another interesting thing is that when you see again where he's like concerned about his men, and even when he said, I quit, he was concerned about like his wife. Yeah. And like that was the significant element. Just you a know? totally selfless person. Dang. Awesome. Um, well, 
speaking of. <laughs> Being awesome. Yeah. Echo we, Charles, you're we can, awesome. We, thanks, bro. <laughs> we can talk about some awesome American-made stuff. That's a good idea. I like where you're going with this. Origin. OriginMain.com. But yeah, Origin. That's the brand. So what is Origin? We're in league with Origin. I like the expression in league with, by the way. I might have told you that before. Yeah. It's a good way of putting it. Yeah. So... This is straight up the best American-made apparel in the world. You can you don't have to say the best American-made apparel. You can say it's the best apparel in the world, and it's American-made. Yeah. Is that subjective? I guess it's kind of subjective. But if you say it's the best American-made, well, I guess it all <laughs> technically might be. I don't know. Either way, it's and, dope. Yeah. And it's all made in America. But here's the thing about made in America. I guess, I don't know. I could be wrong about this part, but technically you could be like, yeah, they they sewed these, I don't know, pants or whatever, mm -hmm. you know, in America. Like, hey, where'd you get the material? Oh, well, you know, we got it from somewhere else, not in America, which I guess is cool. Technically it was made, it was crafted, but not here. Mm -hmm. So you figure what, like, let's say your cotton pants, right? You get the material from... America, but how do you make the material? The actual cotton. Where does cotton come from? You grow it. <laughs> I used to have a cotton like trees, like a bunch of them. By the way, I'm quiet, nonetheless. So where do they get? Where does Origin get that cotton? America. What about the seeds to plant the cotton? They're from America for <laughs> sure. <laughs> so straight up from the ground, from the, from the earth, from the seeds to the pants that you get in the event of you getting pants yeah. by the way there's other stuff there's geese and that one's a good one the geese if you're into jujitsu nonetheless the pants that i got the joggers he was mm -hmm. asking me how do you like those mm -hmm. and you know the new joggers they're kind of like they have a different shape than the old school sweatpants yeah. so i was like okay you know and i looked into those i was telling pete this story where i ordered some ironically from overseas i ordered them from overseas they looked pretty good mm -hmm. so i ordered them didn't come in by the way this was about a year and a half ago still didn't come in by the way but i looked into it i was like whatever but it's probably not for me Spoetic, you know it's a sign one of those deals either way i get pizza once so i'm like all right cool i'm gonna try these i put them on surprisingly legitimate as far as the look goes, cool. It's me. Pete even said that I'm like I look good in them, <laughs> which is a lot because I just kind of met Pete in person over the past week. Yeah, anyway, good stuff. <laughs> just saying, it's good stuff. And again, all made in America, all of it. Uh, some geese on there, some cool rash guards. The the George Washington rash guard mm -hmm. that I, I feel like we're ready for that one to come back. So yeah, so Pete should yeah should have that one. Yeah. Nonetheless, origin Maine dot com and when i say maine it's the state maine mm -hmm. so origin m-a-i-n-e dot com that's a good one the best one really when it comes down to it also jocko has some supplements krill oil mm -hmm. which we need and joint warfare so really this is like a full-on like joint 
because krill oil omega-3s for your joints for as sure. well yeah and then joint warfare is like because there's a bunch of things regardless of what you, you think yeah krill oil joints boom good it's there's more to it than that just like what like glucosamine all like yeah. basically all the stuff that you yes. have been taking for years yes you said you know what let me come up with my own jocko formula yeah we have it now boom have it now two products right super krill joint warfare yep that's the one that's the kit that's the new kit mm-hmm. as far as kits go <laughs> also those are also on originmain.com by the way yeah yeah originmain.com also on it so you know uh, we've been we're on a trip right now in the event of people not knowing that we're on a trip to maine i didn't bring the kettlebells I thought that that, that might have been too much. Plus, you know, to check on kettle, they give you 50 pounds, right, in your luggage. Yeah. My kettlebells, one kettlebell, more than 50 pounds. Nonetheless. 88 pounds. Yeah, in your case, minus 62, I think. Oh, okay. The werewolf. Times two, 124. Mm-hmm. Boom, math on point. <laughs> there was a guy at the camp that we went to that brought the kettlebells, the 70-whatever one, the gorilla one from mm-hmm. on it, the, the cool one. I didn't I didn't work out with him though. I was gonna. I wanted to. I intended to. Anyway, those gorilla and werewolf kettlebells that I'm talking about, these are the cool kettlebells. They're from on it. Those are all kettlebells are good, really. But if you want that level up of coolness, um yeah, get those ones. On it.com slash Jocko. Get it. Jump ropes on there. The bunch of cool fitness stuff. If you're lagging in your workout which I do sometimes. I lag in my workout. Not lag like physically, but um, interest-wise. You know, you get kind of bored. Not you. You don't no. get bored, huh? No. You just like... Well, it doesn't matter. Right, It doesn't right. even register bored or not. Yeah, yeah. Execution is happening. It's not what it's about. <laughs> yeah. Well, some of us, we get kind of bored. And it's not that we're getting bored, so we're not going to do it. We're looking for something like, oh, yeah, let me try this new thing. Some new hotness in regards to workouts. Can you not say new hotness anymore I, on this podcast? I heard, I heard Will Smith say it in no, one, of the, one of the movies. I thought it was cool. That doesn't like certify it for the podcast I know, usage. I know, bro. I figured I'd try it out, though. Yeah, just no. It's, it's, it's been tried. It failed. No. Next. Rejected, huh? Yeah. Got, All right. Got if you out. want some new cool stuff uh, to do in regards <laughs> to a workout, hey, man, look, on it has all these one. They have battle ropes and maces and cool stuff. And they have cool videos on there, by the way. Don't get addicted to the website. Spend appropriate amounts of time on the website, not too much. Remember how you're talking about, like, you know, when you watch a video yeah. and on YouTube and yeah. then another one pops up? Yeah. No, six of them pop up. Or yeah. Something. All all formulated for you, all by the way. Especially picked. Watch out for that. Weird YouTube munchkins that are like saying, I know what Jacko likes. Yeah. That's actually. He exactly. wants to see another street fight. <laughs> <laughs> that's what you watch. Uh, psycho. Anyway, just watch out for that on, on the website. on the on it website because the videos are real interesting but they're about workouts though a lot of them so it's kind of it's kind of yeah. a catch 22 watching you know? a video about working out does not replace working out though no no yeah, so not at just all checking you got to get after it for sure but a lot of options on there anyway on it.com slash jocko that's the one right there also you know what though in this camp so some guys came to the camp they brought this 200 pound bag bag of he Rocks. said it was a sandbag but it's like gravel mm-hmm. essentially and the challenge is to pick it up over your shoulder 200 pounds so even that really i mean 
that's not that easy. Two hundred pounds. The way when they were explaining it to me, it was Mike, Gerard, Brian, mm-hmm. Victor. Mm-hmm. They were expo- uh, explaining it to me. Well, while they're explaining it to me, I'm thinking, okay, I know what a hundred fifty pound dumbbell feels like when you lift it up. And I'm thinking, could I get that? And that has a handle and balance, by the mm-hmm. way. So I'm like, shoot, could do I? Th- oh, man, I don't know if I could do that. Could I? Could I do that? And then they're like, oh yeah, you know, like that. I've done it, and I'm like, okay, so it can be done. Like it's it, it's obviously not like this thing. You need years of practice or whatever. So I was like, but man, I don't know. And then sure enough, so it's, yeah, when I went and did it, it was like it was hard. I failed the first one. Mm-hmm. I brought you bring it up. You kind of bring it onto your lap. You know, two hundred pounds, man. That's mm-hmm. not like it's like you know how you say when you when you pick up a a, a person and they're just dead weight. Mm. Similar to that. Anyway, boom, fail the first time. They're cheering me on. Thanks for that, by the way, guys. That helped me. And then the second time I did it, it was it was good. One of the high points. Anyway, that that was just a side note. Also, just to, so a bunch of people don't have to ask me. I did not participate in the challenge. I have an injured rib. That was that. Yeah, you weren't real happy about that. You're still not not happy. happy. I see it on your face, man. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) The rib's almost healed. Uh, Thanks, Andy. That was Andy. Andy Andy did that to my ribs. In a way, and this is, I think you paid a bigger price than me, but you messed up my rib in an identical way Mm. a few months ago. Oh, you were going to get a submission on me and then... (laughs) You hurt yourself? No, I, I was really... trying. I I was escaping the oh, submission. Okay. Well, so yeah, it was happen. essentially the same situation, but instead, this time you got the rib injury yeah. instead of the guy you were trying to tap out. <laughs> so yeah, so in a way, good for you, you know. And I hope you, we've all learned something from this whole thing today. Anyway, also, when you buy this book, and you will and should, tough as they come, tough as they come, Travis Mills. Get it through our website. That's a good way to support. I have a little section. We have a little section. Books from the podcast. Click on there. It'll be by episode. This is, um, you know, this is a good way to support. Click through there. It'll bring you to Amazon. Even if you're going to do any other shopping, boom, even just as good a way to support that way. Just click through. Get the book. That's a good way. Small action. Big reaction. Small click. Click. One, two. It's like two more clicks. Super small action. Somebody asked me, they said, hey, does it really help the podcast to like do the Amazon click through? And I said, absolutely, it really does. And they yes. said, well, like how much? And I said, well, it's basically the way Echo describes it. It's basically the way Echo describes it. Small action, big reaction. So yep. you're Dig actually it. very right on that one. Yes. Yep. I, you know, I just had a feeling from the beginning that that was, that's a good way to put it. And it is really also subscribe to the podcast. It's a good way to support Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play, all these ones that provide pla- uh, podcasts. Um, this seems, you know, seems like something that everyone probably has done already. But, you know, if you haven't subscribed to them, that's a good one. If you're in the mood, leave a review. That's a good one. Some good reviews on there already. And thank you guys for doing that. Very colorful. Would you say colorful? Is that a good? Is good, that a good? Yes, colorful. Word? Creative reviews. Creative. Yeah. It's good. They're fun to read from time to time. Also, YouTube, if you like the video or want to watch the video version of this podcast, see what Travis looks like, see what Jocko looks like, see what I look like if you're into that. 
um yeah subscribe to the youtube get a get a little alert when we upload a video yeah but beyond just watching what we look like there's other things that come from the youtube channel yeah that are not on the podcast oh right yeah sometimes. if you subscribe yes right so, whether it's little augmented videos that you make with your creative um spin on them layer. yeah there's just straight excerpts right and then there's uh, deleted scenes yeah deleted scenes i think i'll put some more on there I, there's a few you know what when you kind of go through and I and I want you know when I edit yeah. right so really the edit the audio editing process is pretty simple you cut off the beginning you cut off the end you fade it in you fade it out done that's it easy yeah but the parts that I cut off there's some some nuggets some in there. interesting stuff and you know when you're in the in the moment I'm talking to you it's just yeah. regular we're just talking and whatever maybe we're laughing maybe not but when you kind of go back and listen to it it's kind of funny mm. Anyway, I'll put some some of those on there too. So yeah, if you subscribe to the YouTube channel, you can watch those. Those are cool. The excerpts are just kind of like um, you know shareable, smaller, you know nuggets of Jocko wisdom, <laughs> which is cool. I mean, you know, if you don't want to listen to the whole podcast just for the thing, in fact, in fact, there's a couple of people where they were like, yeah, I listened to those. They, the guy at the camp, he was like, yeah, I listen to those excerpts like almost every day. Yeah, because yeah. they're like, yeah, there's a lot of them there now too. By the way, also. Jocko has a store. It's called Jocko Store. JockoStore.com. There's some shirts on there. If you want to support. So I'm not saying buy a shirt. I'm not saying buy a hat. Got hats on there now. Snapback. Snapback. My bad. I thought they were Echo flex was fit. Wrong. You know Echo, what? Echo thought it was flex fit trucker hats. Yeah. They don't exist. Uh, yeah, they the world don't. doesn't have those and the world doesn't need them. Yeah. It almost doesn't make sense. Yeah. Well. Maybe. I don't know. I for real thought they were flex fit. But you know what? I I looked into it and I, I realized that the um the reason that I thought they were flex fit is because some new hats I'm coming out with. Oh. Maybe in a few weeks. They're like they're a different style of hat and they're flex fit. They look dope too, by the way. <laughs> I'll show them to you one day. Cool. Um so yeah, I'm not saying hey, I'm not saying hey, buy a hat, buy a shirt, buy a rash guard or whatever. I'm saying go in the store. Jocko store. Look on there, check out the items, and if you like something, get something. Some hoodies on there, some women's stuff, some patches, which are cool. I've seen a few of those mm -hmm. on people's backpacks. Actually, they look kind of dope. I'm gonna um probably put one on my backpack. Um, and you know, some thanks other for stuff. letting us all know. I'm, I'm just, you know, sometimes you just think think no, out man, loud. Definitely whatever. curious about that. <laughs> we, we'll all be looking forward yeah, to seeing. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'll show it to you when it's done. Anyway. <laughs> JockoStore.com. That's a good way. Also, <laughs> psychological warfare. Who are we just talking to that? Oh, Pete. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Where, okay, basically, psycholo psychological warfare, what is that? It is an album with tracks, Jocko tracks, where <laughs> in your campaign against weakness, meaning yes. if, you're, if you have goals, like, okay, so I listen to Jordan Peterson, mm -hmm. and he kind of he has this thing i'm not gonna go like too much into it but he has this thing where it's like okay why don't why don't people get what they want so, because and one of the reasons is because they just don't know what that is and we kind of don't even if you say i want to get better better in what jujitsu because you can do one push-up a day and you're technically better technically so it's like what do you mean better better how whatever whatever so anyway back to this psychological 
if you want to, I don't know, lose weight, you want to wake up earlier and be more disciplined in these specific ways and all this stuff. You want to clean up your diet. To clean up your diet, you got to avoid junk food, all this stuff. Mm -hmm. Junk food, you get distracted by short-term payoffs, right, with junk food. Because the whole idea of junk food is short-term payoff over long-term payoff. Good diet, long-term payoff. Bad diet, short-term payoff. Anyway, if you get tempted by weakness... You listen to the Psychological Warfare album or just a track or whatever. So, look, you're waking up early in the morning, 4.30 every day. That's what I'm doing from now on. That one day when you're kind of tired and the alarm goes off and you're tempted or compelled to press the snooze or just stay in bed. I'll wake up later. I'll wake up at, at noon. Just saying some people wake up at noon sometimes. Play this track called get up and get after it i guarantee you won't wake up at noon you'll wake up at the assigned time assigned by yourself by the way 100 percent um success rate on that if you fail if you listen to this and you fail at your little thing yeah i don't know i don't know what to say but that's a good one psychological warfare jocko willink look for it look into it also you get some jocko white tea you can get that on amazon it'll make you be able to um do amazing feats of strengths Sure. With, with no effort, barely at all. Yeah, like the rock bag. <laughs> yeah, you got a little Jocko White tea, boom, you nailed it. Easy money, one hand. <laughs> uh, books, like Echo said, Tough As They Come by Travis Mills, you can get that. You can also get a book called Extreme Ownership that I wrote with my brother Leif Babin. It's about combat leadership. Way of the Warrior Kid, if you want your kid or a kid that you know to be stronger, smarter, healthier, and therefore... Because they're stronger, smarter, and healthier, they're also more confident. Mm-hmm. If you want to do that for a kid, get him a book called Way of the Warrior Kid. Then you can also get the Discipline Equals Freedom Field Manual. Um, it got a little bump the other day. I don't know. I think uh, like in social media, I put something out, and it got a little bump, and all of a sudden, the delivery dates of people that just ordered it got pushed back. Mm. So I don't know I don't know specifically like what that means, but I tell you this It means you should order it now if you want to get it when it comes out order it if you want that first edition copy Which is pretty much what you want If you need leadership in your world, which you probably do because that's the way things get done is through leadership And you need help in that department. You can contact our leadership consulting company echelon front. It's me it's Leif Babin, JP Dinell, Dave Burke. You can email us at info at echelonfront.com if you want us to come speak or work with your company. That's what you do. And finally, and this is uh, the muster. We are close to selling it out right now. Um, the one that's in San Diego, September 14th and 15th. Leadership tactics, techniques, and procedures for business and life. Get better at everything. Get registered. Do it now before it sells out. It might even be sold out by the time this podcast comes out. But check it out. See if you can find it. Um, See if you can get there. ExtremeOwnership.com. And until the muster, if you do need to communicate with us, we're actually cruising on the interwebs. Twitter, Instagram, and also the Facebook. Echo is at Echo Charles, and I am at Jocko Willink and to 
all the military members out there that are holding the line thank you and to those veterans that stood the watch especially those that were wounded thank you for giving us our freedom and to police law enforcement firefighters EMTs and other first responders thank you for your service and thank you for keeping us protected from man and from nature here at home and to everyone else out there facing struggles and facing hard times remember remember the challenges that Travis Mills faced and still faces and he faces those incredible challenges every minute of every day and he does that with tenacity and positivity and proves without question that if you never quit and you never give up and you keep moving forward then nothing can stop you from getting after it so until next time this is echo and jocko out